Welcome back, Ben. This is your homecoming. <laughs> good to be back, Denny. Cheers, man. Thanks for the invite. About, it was about a year ago you, you, I had you in here. And then uh, since then, you've been on Joe Rogan. You've been on Flagrant. What other podcasts have you been on? Uh, there have been a few. I think those were mostly the the, the big in-studio ones. Yeah. Uh, was was Rogan and, and Andrew Schultz's um, Flagrant, which was uh, hilarious, actually. That was, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. And I've, I was on Rogan with Jimmy... Uh, that was a great opportunity. I enjoyed that, although it's a bit of a blur in my head at this point. But yeah. I've been on a few others, just on like Zoom and the remote style ones. So yeah, been getting but the you were out. the first guy to <laughs> first in studio podcast. So. Well, cool, man. I'm happy to uh, inspire those guys to discover you. I mean, I'm sure they already. I know. I know Rogan already knew about you. He'd already seen videos of your stuff. I think so. Yeah. But um, you've been all over the place too. You got, you just got back from Turkey, I think, recently. England, well, Turkey earlier this year, and then Eng England. I came back from England a couple of weeks back. First chance to visit sort of the megalithic structures there, the stone circles, uh, the museums, things like that. There's so, I mean, you could spend months in, in the British Isles. There's so much to see there. I definitely want to go back. Yeah. Well, but so, Turkey early in the year. So what were you doing in Turkey? Where'd you go? You went to Gobekli Tepe? And we did. So we, we did, uh, I did a couple of weeks in southeastern Turkey. So, so in that Gobekli Tepe, uh, <clears throat> Tepe region, like there's, it's all centered around the city of uh, Şenlerfa. Which is the uh, the biblical Edessa? It's the city of prophets. It's a city that goes back thousands of years. I mean, it goes. There's been occupation there since Neolithic times. It's a really interesting city. It's it's sort of Abrahamic traditions uh, there. That the, a lot of the legends from books of the faith that that now are like you know Judaism, Islam, and uh, and Christianity. A lot of the the, the events that that happen in those uh, in those religions are all centered in that area. It's you know it was it was part of like the Silk Road, the northern ish end of what was Mesopotamia back in the day. So it's an ancient place. Uh, really interesting city. A lot of fun. Um, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. It was my first time in Turkey and uh, different to Egypt, I'd say. It was it was a really nice place. And I, the timing was, it's, I don't know what happens with me and travel, man. I'm trying to even get over here. We had the, <laughs> yeah, we, we, had that, we had the hurricane, <laughs> but man, it just, I have the worst luck with travel because they had, they, obviously they had the earthquakes. Earlier in this year, those big earthquakes that that and it it oh, like yeah, they shook down a lot of people. Like at least, I mean, I think the government estimates they said something like fifty thousand people. The guys that I knew on the ground there who were out, like my 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 guy there, Ramazan, who we did the tour with, lost his home. Like his home fell down. He was living out of his car, but within the next day or two, he's out helping in the villages, trying to trying to help people to sort of recover from it. But he said it was probably more like two hundred fifty thousand people that might have died in that just from. If you include Syria, because it's just it's right next to the Syrian border, and there was a lot of uh, of Syria that was affected as well, but yeah, so that happened, and they're like, man, we okay, so the the city itself of Shenlofa was wasn't the infrastructure was still up, the roads were okay, like it, a few buildings fell down, some of the other cities were much um, were impacted much more, and then they then they had these rains, they had these floods, which were almost unprecedented floods in um, in that region, it just poured down, and you know, there were people that died in Shalurfa purely because they were they were they didn't have anywhere to live, and they were in these tents, and they got sort of washed into these alcoves and carried away in these floods, and a bunch of people died. So I was like, man, and all this happened within you know the, the couple of weeks, and I, I guess around the the month leading up to it. So we were like, geez, uh, are we going to do it? And he was like, yeah, we can do it, and we sort of reassured the people that were coming with us, we can 
we can make it happen. And uh, and we did. Unfortunately, obviously, places like the museum, they have this wonderful museum in Shenlerfa where a lot of the artifacts from Gobekli Tepe, Karahan Tepe, like all of the, the recent archaeological finds there are housed in this museum. But it was they, they had to evacuate it because of the, the floods. They, they basically boxed up. I don't know, like a hundred thousand artifacts or something, and, and shipped them off, so we couldn't get into the museum. But also, as a consequence, it it did make the place green. Like normally, if you see pictures of those of that region, it's brown. But we were there; it was just breathtakingly beautiful. Like these these limestone hills were just breaking out in wildflowers and grass, and and everywhere we went, it was just gorgeous. Um, and and of course, the sites there are just incredible. They go back forever. There's Gobekli Tepe, which was. Everyone, I think, who is interested in this field should know something about Gobekli Tepe. It's 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 the site that was, I mean, it was originally discovered in the 1950s. I think it was there were some farmers, or they saw some these the tops of what it turned out to be these big T pillars sticking out of the ground on this side of a hill. I think it translates to pot-bellied hill uh, in in um, in that language and. They sort of dismissed it as being. They thought, well, no, this is a relatively modern cemetery or something like it, it. It's not a, you know, it's not. The stonework was too good to be considered very ancient, and it wasn't until the mid 1990s when the German Archaeological Institute and uh, Klaus Schmidt, who sadly's um, passed away since then, began to excavate uh, at Göbekli Tepe, and that's when they found, okay, yeah, so this is actually tremendously ancient. It does have. Some some very unique stonework, including megalithic work. You've got you know T pillars that are eighteen feet tall and twenty plus tons, and it's a very large site. It's it's all of these stone circles, these pillars that are encompassed by more of a, a loose or a rough uh, stone uh, stone walls, and it it spreads out. It's quite large. There's a number of them. They only excavated maybe ten percent of that site, uh, and it it shook the world up because they they based on some of the material that they found. Uh, in that dig, they they pretty much conclusively dated that thing to about eleven thousand years old, which is which is much older than any previously recorded you know evidence of civilization or of this type of of occupation. Uh, so going there was was a really interesting experience. Um, people have said for a long time that it was deliberately buried. These this the the work and the research and the science on this is slowly changing. They're starting to move away from this idea that it was deliberately buried. It may just have been layers of layers of sediment that have built up over time. There might have been some periods of burying. It, it, in fact, if you tried to bury it deliberately, it would have taken years and years and years. It's it's a huge site. But what's what's what was interesting to me, you know, researching this site is that if you look at the picture of this is a good picture of it. I I have some photos too. But this this works. Is it you? You have two styles of architecture here. You have the the megalithic work, the T pillars, and it's not, you know, it's not just the pillars here. They they would they would actually cut down to the bedrock. You see that area around the T pillars. It, it's when you go there, it looks like cement. It's it's not cement. It's actually the, I believe, limestone bedrock that they've they've lapped down to be flat. So they have these huge, big, flat areas, and they inset these stones into them, or some of them are set up on pedestals like that central one, and. Uh, these T pillars are a lot of them. They're not all complete. They're 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 some of them are broken. They have the the most amazing high relief artwork on them. Uh, by that, it's it's you know it means you're carving away the negative space to to make the figures and the symbols pop out at you. Like right, right, right. Yeah, and uh, see, and that's a good example of that image there of of that of that one stone. Yeah, if you look at that, so you see how the walls the walls around it kind of encompass those stones, mm -hmm. like they actually cover up some of the features, and 
they've you can clearly tell the walls seem like they've they've been built to to reinforce these stone circles to, to, to sort of preserve them almost and looking at the walls and this is also true at another site we'll talk about Karahan Tepe inside the walls there's actually pieces of broken pillars have been used as material in the building of the walls and the material or the organic matter that they've used to date the site to give it that 11,000 year old age came from inside these walls so it's it's like to me I look at that it's to me it's two different architectural styles it's it's I think it is it is a potentially indicative of two entirely different periods of occupation and building because these walls are quite primitive it's local stone and they're actually using pieces of broken pillars which means that those pillars could have been there for who knows how long actually fallen over some of them might have broken and they've been encompassed and used in these walls that were then used to to sort of resurrect or renew or, or renovate the site and and protect these pillars so it's it do we know if it's it's eleven thousand year old I, I think that's kind of the earliest date for it the youngest date it, it could be vastly older than that we we really don't know and you said there's a bunch of this that's still under the ground heaps of it yeah so they've they've kind of excavated on one side of a of a of a hill and that's where the UNESCO, like the World Heritage Site is now. Mm -hmm. uh, they've put a big cover over the top of it. Uh, it's actually great. Like, yeah, see the walkway there? They, there's this big, they want to keep the rain off it. I think if it, when it does rain, if they, if they left it out in the weather, it'd just get really muddy and, you know, all the, it'd just mm -hmm. wash away a lot of the, the sediment. Uh, I, it's a great way to view the site. It'd be lovely to get down in there, but they get, they get a lot of traffic. Like this has become a major tourist attraction oh, wow. for that part of Turkey now. A lot of people want to see this. And they've got a, they've built a big visitor center and, uh, yeah, so it's it's a nice way to view the site, and if you have a camera with a zoom lens, you can kind of see a lot of the detail. Oh wow, that's incredible! That negative relief. Yeah, the high relief, and there's you know lots of interesting studies that have been done on Gobekli Tepe. Martin Sweatman, who I've talked about, he he was presenting at the Cosmic Summit um, recently as well. I've talked with him on my uh, on my channel. He wrote a book called Prehistory Decoded. And he contends that Gobekli Tepe is something of a celestial calendar. He uses a, a method of statistical analysis that shows that it's it's extremely likely that's what it is. He's he's looking at at the figures relating to you know precession and um, and and constellations in the sky, and that it when when looked at through his analysis, it seems to mark you know interesting events uh, that we know sort of happened like periods like the younger Dryas, because this, this site dates back to the younger Dryas, and had there been, you know, this, this comet or these impacts or these fragments of things coming from the sky, that's probably something they would have noticed. He wrote a whole, a whole book on this. That's, it's a very interesting theory. He gets, he gets attacked pretty hard on the basis of it. I think from a lot of people that don't really understand the nature of statistics and how that works. He actually wrote a, a peer, there's a peer reviewed paper uh, that you can read uh, if you're interested in kind of diving into his research or his detail. There's other studies that have been done also that are interesting on the geometry of the site. So there's not only do you have a num you have these stone circles, which the circles themselves, and this is true also at Karan Tepe, have alignment, interesting alignment. So they align to, you know, a lot of them may well have been used as solar observatories or potentially lunar observatories. So there's, you know, there's, there's alignments on the site that, that point to significant periods like solstices, equinoxes, mm. lunar events. But there's, there's actually a, a geometric arrangement between the circles themselves at Gobekli Tepe. So they form like equilateral triangles, I think. There's, there's been some studies done that, that shows that it was a very deliberate layout planned of, of how these stone circles were formed so it's it was fascinating and 
not you know so go back to Tepe was obviously a highlight but but what I didn't know uh, on this trip was was the fact that okay I knew about Karahan Tepe so that's another site that's so nearby it's actually very pretty close uh, uh, there are there was a site that was re- very recently discovered it's an active archaeological site now I believe the the University of Istanbul is is excavating there uh, it's another stone circle site it's similar architecture to Gobekli Tepe you have huge T pillars but it's something like ten times larger than Gobekli Tepe, and they've only just sort of scratched the surface at Karahan. They're still digging, and we had special permission to go in there and look around the site. And you can literally walk, look at these beautiful hills with flowers on them, and just poking up everywhere are the tops of T-pillars. You just see this tiny little top of it, and you clearly see it's a T-pillar, and there's something buried under here. And there might be as many as a 1,000 T-pillars on this site. Um, it's it's at least five times or, or, or more, I think, larger than Gobekli Tepe, and it's at least 500 years older based on the dating of material that they found so far, which it's kind of funny because when they built a visitor center at Gobekli Tepe, they called it like the zero point in history. Uh, they were, this was the brand name that it gave you. You go in these big light shows and these you know big wall-to-wall sort of cinematic experiences to, mm-hmm. to look at the site, but it's like, well, I guess that makes... Karahan Tepe is 0.500 or something like this. Wow. Right? right, it's even older. And uh, I, I actually was out there like three, four times during the, the two weeks. It's a wonderful site. Uh, I could probably even pull up images if we want to see them. But it's, um, yeah, they're just starting to excavate. And you see a similar thing. In fact, at Karahan, there's, there's evidence of domiciles. So it, this gets, it, the, the, one of the controversies about Gobekli Tepe is is this civilization, right? Because technically, if you go look at, and, and I guess this is more along the, the, I guess the orthodox line of thinking, the date for civilization hasn't really changed. We're still saying, well, 6,000 years ago, you know, Sumerians and Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. that was the start. But when I look at a place like Gobekli Tepe or Karahan Tepe, that screams civilization to me. Now, the, 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 the theory is, oh, it's, it's purely ceremonial. You know, it was it was... What happened, and this this sort of came out with the Michael Shermer, um, uh, Graham Hancock, and Randall Carlson uh, podcast at, yeah. on JRE. It's right. a well-known one. I mean, they, they've essentially just changed the definition of hunter-gatherers to to now not just be well. No, this is not just we're not just out hunter hunter and gathering, but on the weekends, I guess when the, the men want to get away from the women and the kids or something, they like to you know participate in a little bit of megalithic uh, stone building and things like this, and you know building these twenty-ton. T pillars, it's insane. But you know, there's there's infrastructure on these sites. They're they're massive. There's there's cisterns. There's um, quarries. There are other structures at at Karahan Tepe. There's there's actually evidence for domiciles and permanent housing, which is another indication of sort of settlement and, and civilization. And I just I just look at at the scale and scope of what is on these sites, and it's like you, that's not something you do on the side. Like this is a this requires specialization, right? So for people to be able to specialize in doing this type of stonework, this type of, of, of a logistical endeavor, the, the artwork that's required um, to, to carve these things, you need to have infrastructure around you that means there's other people collecting food, there's other people doing things. Like it's that organization that, that essentially defines civilization. I think just the scale and scope of the work requires that. So it's, I think it's kind of ridiculous that we don't consider this civilization and the nail in the coffin for me, and this is something I learned on that trip, is that it's not only is there Karahan and 
go back Lutepe, but there's between 40 and 80 more sites that they've discovered just like that. Around that area? Around that area in southeastern Turkey, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of other well-known sites, Sogmatar and other places, but these mm-hmm. these tepes and these stone and these T-pillared stone circles, they're doing a lot of ground penetrating radar and that type of thing, and they've discovered somewhere between forty and eighty, and they I think they want to open up like fifteen of them for tourism, um, and that's like at that point, you know, that's a huge civilization. That's a, that's a that's a it requires a big population of people, and. It's civilization. I mean, it's it's like a lost chapter of human civilization that we really know nothing about. Like we've got some artifacts and we've got some indication, but it's it's a yeah. I mean, it's it's to me, it's just a whole lost chapter of of our history in this region. Who are the organizations involved in doing some of this uh, ground penetrating ground penetrating radar and like discovering more of these sites? Well, I, a lot of it is happening locally with the the universities in Turkey. Oh, okay. Uh, Istanbul. I mean, they're ex- they're excavating. I believe it's the University of Istanbul um, is excavating at Karahan. Who was doing Gobekli? Well, German Archaeological Institute was was the one working at, at Gobekli Tepe. It's you know the way the way these projects get dealt out and and the way that that digs happen and sort of institutions get involved is is no regular process. It's like a negotiation process. I assume it's. You know, some academic institution somewhere in the world wants to go and dig somewhere and it's a negotiation with the government to get the permissions and then they kind of get to to run the site. And then at places like, like Gobekli Tepe, when UNESCO gets involved, that's a whole other set of things. You see the same thing in Egypt. Like there's various, you have the British in one area, you have, you know, the French in another area, you have the Germans in another area, you have the, the Egyptians themselves doing uh, a lot of work in, in different areas. So it's it's a case-by-case basis almost about who actually does the work and and then publishes uh certainly in egypt any publishing of of findings has to be done in 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 close concert with the department of antiquities formerly the supreme council of um antiquities uh so you you would they essentially control the release of information so people that have seen things like the recent you know scan pyramids project and and that sort of data, when they, they found that new chamber in the um, in the Great Pyramid and, and stuck a you know a, a, a like a little camera in there to take a look, that was all released by by the Department of Antiquities in, in Egypt in partnership with the people that were actually doing the work. When did they, when did they find a new chamber in the Great Pyramid? Oh, you haven't heard this. So well, it's been going on for a couple of years now. That so they there's been a the Scan Pyramids project is is what it's called. They they're essentially using uh, muon cos cosmology or it's or it's, it's it's basically cosmic ray detection so they put all these sensors and i've, I've seen them a bunch of times because they i've been into the pyramid over this period of time several times and down in the subterranean chamber there's like a, a rack full of gear and there's you know there's these boxes up on the grand gallery and in the queen's chamber like the parts that you can't normally get to the average tourist won't be able to get to you need right. to like book a special permission to see there's a lot of this infrastructure and so what they're doing is is there's these you know cosmic rays and muons in this case uh, are passing through, you know, they pass through material, they pass through stone and everything like that. But but there is a, a sort of a very slight difference when they when they pass through material versus a void. Mm. So they put these detectors in there and they leave them for a couple of years and they've got them on the outside as well. So they're measuring it kind of from all these different angles and putting all that data together and crunching it lets, has let them kind of put together a, a rough picture of where they think there are voids inside the pyramid. Right, so these are like empty spaces, mm-hmm. and and one of them was a small empty space behind, above the main entrance. So the main entrance is, 
is above where we go in today. So today, when you visit the pyramid, you go up um, on that north side and and you and you enter in through what's known as as uh, Al Mamun's Hole or Mamun's Hole. It's like it's supposedly been hammered by the Caliph Al Mamun, and he sort of hammered through the the uh, the limestone superstructure of the pyramid, and he hit the junction between the ascending and descending passageway. Okay. But up above <laughs> that, and you can see that in that those chevron blocks. So. The actual the uh, the descending passageway actually goes all the way up to a doorway that's b below those two triangle shaped chevron blocks in that in that center top picture. Yeah, that one. So there's a doorway there that's considered the original main entrance to the pyramid. Now this was all in antiquity, still cased over, so this wasn't visible. That um, at some point it was certainly opened in antiquity. It was Alma Moon wasn't the first one in there. But it's actually the, where the void is is above that sort of behind those chevrons. There's a there's a small chamber, and they and they either drilled a hole or they found a a space where they could stick a little tube in and then put one of those you know little snake yeah. cameras in there, and they had a look around. And sure enough, there's this space, and it was a big yeah. This scientists reveal hidden corridor. I mean, it's it's this is this little chamber, and it's got these chevron blocks. It's like those chevron blocks keep going back into the superstructure of the pyramid, and it doesn't seem to go anywhere, but we don't know that because often these some of these passages would be blocked up. That was certainly the case with the uh, what the ascending passageway that comes off the descending passageway has these big granite plug block, plug uh, plug blocks in yeah. it. But the the really interesting part of this scan pyramids project is that they found a massive void in the pyramid, a really large void. Like this is a tiny little space that they've looked at, but in what if you've seen the layout of the pyramid in the in the area above the grand gallery, it's kind of above and I think a little bit to the right. They've they've found indication for what is just a huge chamber. Now this it's something like forty meters long. Which one is the grand gallery there? So it's that it's that large angled piece on the on the right. See the it's the one that's just to the right of the king's chamber. It's the angled down like oh I see tall. it. Okay, towards the top. Yeah, yeah. So it, it connects the the so the descending passageway is the passageway that goes down to uh, this. That kind of isn't to scale that picture that's right, okay. not even actually I don't know that's that's not the architecture for the pyramid mm -hmm. that's pharaoh Os osmos this is that's a completely huh. sort of diff yeah that's not the actual pyramid uh, okay that's like there's a lot of chambers that aren't there on that map um but it's 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 a huge yeah that's probably oh, a, that's a picture. sick diagram yeah this is probably a little closer to reality um I probably have a picture too but there you go is it obvious to you when you go in the pyramids that these things were made for people to walk through? No, not at all. It doesn't feel at all that way. It, I, I actually think, it, I don't think they were made for humans, put it that way. And I don't think they were tombs either. I don't, they certainly, I mean, this is not a, this would not have been an easy space to take some sort of formal procession of, of Pharaoh's body into these places. It's ridiculously difficult to move around in them today. And we've added steps and handrails. You know, it's it's a difficult exercise for anyone. Just the the you know the 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 passages are like three and a half feet high and feet square. So you do this pyramid crouch thing. They're on a they're on a pretty steep angle, going up and down. The longest passage is like three hundred feet or something. The, the descending passageway that goes down to the subterranean chamber, and it's quite an exercise getting out of there. Um, and you know, I can only imagine how difficult that might have been without the without the, the modern steps and handrails that we've put in there to help mm -hmm. people. It's not an easy task at all. And then you get into spaces like the Grand Gallery. I mean, that thing looks, there's so many indications in there that that had some sort of function. It's, it's outrageous. There's, 
there's all these slots on the side of the walls. It's, it's as if there was a mechanism moving up and down. I know there's architects that, and, and, and proposals that suggest this was a, uh, like a, 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 almost like a, a sliding lever room that they would use to haul blocks up and do things like this. I'm not convinced. Chris Dunn has his theories about that those slots might have been used to, to house like series of, of Heimholtz resonators that were part of this whole pyramid machine uh, that he proposes. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in any functional take on it. I don't have one personally i just i get the indication from being in there that it it feels like a machine man it feels like you're walking around in the guts of a of a of a machine it's it's just what it feels like it doesn't feel like it's meant for humans you can see the stairs and the handrails on this but this is the grand gallery oh wow it's like how big is that it's huge it's probably about 40 meters long and God, it must be four or five meters tall at the very at the very top. It it chevro- it um you know it steps up. It has that it has that uh, that stepped sort of it narrows as it goes taller. Mm. And along the edges of the walls, you have these these slots. At the very bottom of it, you go straight, and that goes to the chamber known as the Queen's Chamber. And at the top, you go straight through an antechamber and then into the, the the granite structure known as the King's Chamber. So the void that they found, however, is actually above this. And it's it's a it's equivalent in size, so more or less equivalent. It's something like forty meters long, four meters wide, and potentially four meters tall. They're not quite sure if it's angled or if it's straight, but it's an it's and they they kind of prove their they prove their 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 mechanism and their procedure with the first void. Like they 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 did their scans and they said there's probably a void right here, and this one's right you know near the near the front entrance. And sure enough, they drill a hole in there. They stick their little camera in there, and like there it is. We've we found this void. So they've there's a very very high likelihood that there's a void there. There's a undiscovered chambers inside the Great Pyramid. So so who knows what that will reveal? And and I very much hope that if it is explored or plumbed or they drill into it to take a look, that it's it's data that's shared with everybody because it's right. it feels like this is you know the everybody's history <laughs> yeah. in this monument. Now, when you were at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey and some of these other sites, uh, Karahan Tepe, did you are there any um, are there any rocks or stones that show any of these machining marks that you found in Egypt? For all the time that we have been alive, the U.S. dollar has been the primary currency, but that may not be the case for much longer. China is set to dethrone the dollar, and possibly much sooner than you think. And even the world's biggest economies are already ditching the dollar for the yen. Collapsing the U.S. currency, causing unprecedented inflation and crashing markets. And if that wasn't enough, this paves the way for the government to take total control over all of your money with a new digital dollar. Now is the time to take total control of your money and not let your life savings become a casualty of the currency wars. And you can do it using the only precious metal dealer that I trust, American Hartford Gold. They will show you how to protect your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your wealth portfolio into physical gold and silver. With the finest products, amazing customer service, and a buyback commitment. But you don't have to take my word for it. American Hartford Gold has a five-star rating from thousands of reviews and an A-plus from the Better Business Bureau. American Heart for Gold supports content like this that is committed to bringing you the truth. And if you tell them I sent you, they will give you $5,000 in free silver on your first order. So call them now. Click on the link in the description or call 855-679-1326. That's 855-679-1326 or text CONCRETE, K-O-N-C-R-E-T-E, to 655-32. Again, the phone number is 855-679-1326 or text CONCRETE to 655-32. Now back to the show. Uh, not not at those sites that I've seen. No, no. Okay. It's it's definitely 
I mean, it's it's it. You don't see, you don't see the the same sort of advanced te- what I would term the the signs of advanced technology that you see in places like Egypt and Peru, for that matter, and in other areas, Balberg. But I didn't see that in on these sites. Um, there's certainly some very significant achievements but but it is it is in my uh estimation all things that can be can can be done with primitive methodologies uh, i mean at karahan tepe there's still a a stone that's in a quarry that's a t-pillar that's been cut out it probably weighs around 30 tons i mean so that's you know that's doable there's then there's flint everywhere like that's the other thing you see little when you're looking around on the ground there's flint chips everywhere i can probably pull really up, pull up some pictures of it yeah we would just on the site, particularly at Karahan, you can find all of these chippings and like little like flint either arrowheads or they're, they're pieces that have come off, you know, flint chisels or blades. And it's all worked flint. You can tell it's all been napped. Found dozens of them and just pick them up, take a photo, throw them down. Um, but yeah, there's a big T-pillar still in a quarry that's attached. Uh, I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to do, but logistically, sure, you can move, you know, 30 ton loads. Um that said, there are other sites in Turkey that do. I have not visited them yet. I think there's one called, I think it's Zanaki Tepe. It's kind of mm-hmm. hard to say, but it looks very much <clears throat> classical, sort of megalithic, matches the stuff in Egypt. I've seen photos of, of tube drills and, and other indications, and it would take more investigation to see, well, is this specifically something that needs, you know, some sort of advanced tech to, to do? I'm. I'm pretty careful about ex- specifically what I say is like, well, this can or can't be done, you know, with primitive methodologies. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's very specific signatures in stone. It's particular achievements and it's, you know, things like precision that we've measured, not just eyeballed, uh, stuff like that. And, you know, I I also classify like the, the massive logistical challenges over like, say, 250, 400, 1,000 tons. I, th- I I don't think we've answered the question or, or or satisfied the statement that that can all be done with primitive methods like the you know I think I think you can you can do that and people have demonstrated moving large loads uh, up to 100 150 tons maybe even 200 tons I don't know but I, at some point there there's a the, to me there's a line I don't know if it's at like 300 or 400 I mean anything above for sure above 400 tons I'm like I'm I'm really starting to question that this can be done with purely primitive methodologies, particularly those attributed to the dynastic Egyptians in this case, because, you know, the Romans could do a lot of things, but the Romans used pulleys and capstans and they had metal, they had, they had steel, they had, they had a lot more capability than what we know the dynastic Egyptians had. Remember in the old kingdom and for a lot of the, the, that civilization, they had no use of the wheel. They'd never, there's no evidence for pulleys use. They didn't use capstans. They didn't use force multipliers. They literally had like wooden levers, sleds, ropes, and human horsepower. There's no evidence they even used animals to, to haul stuff around. Um, so that's a very much a different challenge when you're talking about gigantic, you know, <laughs> uh, single piece objects that, right. that weigh a thousand tons or more, which, of which there is evidence for many. And uh, in fact, there's, I think there's evidence that, that stones of this size were even being removed from quarries um, prior to the, the pre-dynastic civilization. I think there's strong evidence for that at the Aswan Quarry. It's a, it's a new area of it that I- When was the pre-dynastic? When was pre-dynastic? So the-, so the yeah, uh, give us like the rough timeline. Well, here, yeah, I can actually show it to you. Let me, okay, perfect. Let me and Cleopatra was in the most recent. She was the last. She was the last, right? Last, yeah. And I think, I don't remember where I saw this, but- Cleopatra is actually closer to us than to indeed 
the building of the Great Pyramid. The building of the Great Pyramid. Yeah, so this here gives you an idea. So, you know, you're talking about a little earlier than uh, than 3000 BC, so around 3150 is more or less the date where you have Menes, the first pharaoh of the first dynasty. So like 5,000 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, a little more even. Um, that was so. Anything prior to that is what you would call pre-dynastic times. Okay. And there's there's a few cultures that we associate it with that. The Nadak culture, several others. It's a very interesting time because we get a lot of very interesting artifacts that come from that time. Things like you know precision-made stone vases, which we can talk about. Yeah. But that's the early. It's it's what's known as the early period. The first couple of dynasties. You know then. Um, you know, sort of 2700 BC or thereabouts, we, we get into what's known as the Old Kingdom. This is the famous period. I love studying uh, this period, probably my favorite period. This the is where kingdom. the mega pyramids come in. This is the huge granite works of, you know, the Valley Temple, the Sphinx is in here. All of this stuff, it happens in the Old Kingdom. This is where where mainstream archaeologists believe that the, this is when they believe the pyramids yes. and the Sphinx were made. Yeah, they date this. So the pyramids are all dated to a reign of, of or a family. In fact, the the... the people don't realize this it's like the 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 great the stone pyramids the the massive stone pyramids all of them i mean just in giza alone those three pyramids supposedly were built in a period less than 100 years together like with success because you had you had uh this is the orthodox time frame you had khufu mm -hmm. then you had his son possibly his brother i think kafre built the middle pyramid and then menkara who might have been his son so you got these successive generations that apparently built these pyramids and if you if you go back a little bit to include the other massive, massive stone pyramids that are attributed to one guy, Sneferu, uh, who was the first pharaoh, I think, of the fourth dynasty, uh, you know, he's his he has three pyramids. He has the massive pyramid there's at Maidum, which is just a huge structure. There's the Bent Pyramid, which is, I mean, probably the best preserved, at least the exterior structure of the, is the Bent Pyramid. The casing stones are all locked together, and then most of them are still in place. And then the Red Pyramid. So the Bent Pyramid and the, the Red Pyramid are at a place called Dashur, and they're about the same size as the Middle Pyramid. So very close. These are, these are the same sort of achievements. So if you take all of those stone pyramids, it they, they were all supposedly built in just like a 150-year period, according to the Orthodox timeline. It's... It's kind of silly. And if you, I mean, Sneferu alone, I have a video on Sneferu. What, I mean, it's, there's so many questions. Like they never found him. They didn't find any burials. This is the same story, right? No inscriptions, no burials, no remains in these pyramids. And why does a pharaoh need three pyramids? They, they kind of say, well, you know, he kind of stuffed up on the bent pyramid and he didn't get it right. So, you know, has this angle change to it, which was a mistake, which is complete <laughs> nonsense. You, you don't make, you know, these things aren't made up as they go along. And then they go, well, it's, ah, oh, the, then he did the Red Pyramid. He was probably buried in the Red Pyramid. It's like, why does he need three pyramids? And if he did build all three pyramids, I think I did the math at one point. It's in the video. I think it was like over a 25 or even 40-year period. I think you had to have cut and installed more than 350 tons of stone every day for that entire period to build those three. That's finished. Like in that's, 40 years. In 40 years, I think. Something like that. It's in. <sighs> You have the similar logistical challenges with the Great Pyramid, right? And in a period of twenty-five years, because you you have to, they're 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 this explanation for how these things were built is constrained by the fact that they have a a rough idea of how long the kings they associate to them lived or ruled. And of course, you want to build your pyramid while you're alive. You want to be buried in it. It's you, the next guy to come along may not finish that for you. He might take it off you. <laughs> Who knows what, right? So they go for Khufu, for example, the, the Great Pyramid, roughly 25 years. 
the math works out with that thing with you know two and a half million stones uh, more or less making it up, and it's something like you know five to six million tons. Uh, it's one block quarried, cut, transported, dressed, finished, put in place, complete every five minutes. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year. What's the average years. weight of those blocks? About two and a half tons. With with blocks ranging up to like 60, 70, 70 plus tons, like the granite blocks in its core. A, a good example, I, I love this story. Um, I use it in the one of the videos that I have on uh, on looking at this sort of the, the this absurd timeline of these pyramids. That, mm-hmm. that <clears throat> is that so in France, there's a well-known article, this was... This was um, shown in the revelations of the pyramids a documentary made by a good friend of mine patrice poyard fantastic film but there was a quarry in france like they dug a hole basically they quarried out a stone or something like this this big pit and it was roughly the same volume as the great pyramid of giza and they used it as this big hole in the ground and they're like all right well we've finished quarrying or we've finished doing this so we just use this for a dump for like material like rock or whatever from these building sites so they would literally just dump truck like dump trucks that just back up with this you know whatever dirt digging material from other sites and just dump into it 24 hours a day it was just this one operation when they all these construction projects they just drive trucks up and just dump into it. it took them 12 years to fill it by dumping it dumping into it with with modern dump trucks 24 hours a day all the time 12 years just to fill that space and you're trying to tell me that in 25 years you're building what is one still one of the most precisely made structures on the planet in terms of alignment, the the incredible precision that that is exhibited in the stonework on the inside, the whole the whole the the orientation of the entire structure, you've got, and not included in that figure, by the way, is and not for nothing is the bedrock. I mean, you probably got years of planning, right, just to survey it and plan and design this thing. Then they actually had to like level the bedrock. And they had to get down to a point. They didn't level it entirely. There is a primordial mound sort of thing in the middle, which is another interesting fact that relates to a lot of other sites. But it sits on tiles. There are foundation tiles around this pyramid, some of them weighing 200 to 250 tons. So a lot of people walk up and look at the pyramid, but make sure you look down at your feet. You're walking on something that was constructed before they ever laid the first stone down uh, to build the pyramid. So all of that's probably taken years as well. And then you've got to go through this process of actually constructing the thing. And finishing it because, you know, the inside, they definitely use mortar and there's, there's, you know, it's not a, you wouldn't call it like super precise, most of the superstructure, but the exterior casing stones were incredibly well made, as was a lot of the structures on the inside. The whole massive granite structure that's in the center uh, that, that is, is the king's chamber is part of and is what is above it. There's like five or six chambers above it, all made out of granite. So, yeah, all of this happens in the old kingdom. <laughs> so... So you go from there, you have these intermediate periods. They're essentially periods when um, there's civil unrest or there's you know, a disconnection between Upper and Lower Egypt. Uh, it's, there's, there's something happens to disrupt the kind of the unity of Egypt. The Middle Kingdom runs from dynasties 11 to 14, another intermediate period, the New, the, the new Kingdom. Uh, that's a relatively famous uh, period. You have guys like Ramses II, mm-hmm. um, you know, Meren Patar, um, Seti I, notorious pharaohs. And this is actually an age of great power for the dynastic Egyptian civilization. They were very rich, very powerful during this period. Th- another third intermediate pyramid period, you have a late period. Then you have what's called the Ptolemaic period, which is essentially the Greek-Roman period. And then the civilization, as we know, it comes to an end with Cleopatra, who famously commits suicide around 30 BCE. So 
yeah, that statement that she's closer to us than to the building of the Great Pyramids is true. Like it's, you know, it's what, just under 2000 years since Cleopatra killed herself, but you have to go back, you know, two and a half plus like 2,700 years almost to, to the building of the of the pyramids. So To the official building. The, of the and that's, yeah, the official date of the pyramid. Right. Right, right, which we, people have speculated, you've speculated that it's been a lot, it was a lot earlier than that, right? I Yeah, I would, I question the dating um, of the pyramids. I think, I, I mean, I, it's a difficult thing to, to, to say purely because I'm, I'm, you're looking at the, the skeletal remains of something that's probably been worked on and, and, um, and renovated and reused and just, just, I mean, I'm sure the dynastic Egyptians were working on these things. They did things to them. They used them. They became part of their culture. I, my, my problem with the pyramid, particularly the great pyramid, cause that's the one we've studied the most, but actually most of them, obviously you have the logistical issues with the timeline that I, that I talked about. I think these were multi-generational projects they must have to be. We've got tons of examples of that type of thing in our own time. How long it takes us to build, you know, the Panama Canal or these, these giant projects, their infrastructure projects, they take a long time. Uh, the other, the problem I have with them is, is the precision and the, and the knowledge that's encoded in them. Like, I think, I think any honest analysis of the pyramids leaves you in a position where, where you have no choice but to reevaluate and, and rewrite history. You, you either end up, if you go, okay, the dynastic Egyptians built them, right? Fine. In that case, they had far more capability, right, and far more knowledge than we than we could than we've ever attributed to them, right? I, I think I've talked before about the fact that you have the dimensions of the Earth encoded into the pyramid, right? It's it's essentially a scale model of the the northern hemisphere. There's there there seems to be uh, specific information about the fact that the the Earth's an, an, an oblate spheroid that it's it's longer around the the equatorial circumference than it is the polar circumference. Right. The, this the grid of latitude and longitude, like that ratio, of the fact that we're you know we're slightly slightly longer east to west than we are north to south. That ratio, if you knock it out on like a a, a grid of latitude and longitude, those mm -hmm. squares they're not really squares; they're rectangular. Um, because the because of the way the Earth's shaped, the latitude lines are are shorter, shorter. than the longitudinal right. lines. So if you take a square unit, basically out of the Earth, starting at the equator, it would be wider than it is tall. And That's if right. you scale it down, it, it is like within inches, the exact um, the exact yeah, size. Yeah, I have, I have it the, here. I, uh, let me let me grab it uh, here. Pyramid stuff. It's actually called. <laughs> this is it here. So it's it's. Um, so it, it kind of it kind of starts here. This is where the, this is where that ratio is encoded. It's in something okay, called right. the socle. Yes, which is essentially a cubit high. Uh, it's like a little plat. Think of it as like a little platform the pyramid sits on, which gives you two ways to measure its perimeter. Right, you can measure the perimeter based on the perimeter of the socle or the perimeter of the actual pyramid, and and then. So this is your uh, this is exactly what you were talking about. So one quarter of one minute of latitude at the equator on the Earth is is three thousand twenty two point nine feet. Mm -hmm. A quarter of a minute of longitude is slightly longer at thirty at thirty forty three point five feet. And then so the perimeter length of the pyramid without the socle is thirty point. It's like what point two of a foot off, and this is point one of a uh, of a foot off, being exactly that same ratio. So you have latitude and longitude. You have the dimensionality of the planet. This this. Which is we again, you know. Randall mentioned this the other day. It's we we 
we didn't really get a good, uh, an accurate understanding of that until we had satellite surveys and we did uh, uh, space observations in the 1980s. And it turns out, because we were, we had a much different idea of this before that time. And the more accurate we became, the closer we got to the pyramid numbers. You know what I'm saying? Like we 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 were under, we started to learn actually the pyramid very accurately encodes this data. Um, you know, you have some other things on the pyramid, like it's it has that ratio of four three two. The this mm -hmm. is one of those cosmically significant numbers yeah. that's in that that pantheon of very interesting uh, astronomical numbers, and it's it's at a scale of forty three thousand two hundred. It essentially replicates the Earth. You multiply the height of the Great Pyramid by forty three thousand two hundred, you get the polar radius of the Earth. You multiply the base perimeter of it by forty two thousand two hundred, you get the equatorial circumference of the Earth. This was coming up a lot yesterday with Randall, and yeah. he was explaining this plasmoid generator type thing and how yeah. the the dimensions of the tubes and the sphere and the thunderbolt generator are. It starts at uh, four inches, then it goes to three, then it goes to two. two. Yeah. That is used like throughout that whole mechanism, which is yeah. There's there's a lot of these numbers tend to repeat in uh, in lots of different ways, and Randall's a complete master at at showing it all. But that's mm. so that's. That's why I say that I think, I, and, and you know, other people have argued that the speed of light's encoded in it, and there's obviously all this precision stonework in the pyramid. So, you know, and a log it's a logistical achievement like no other that wasn't equaled until relatively modern times. I mean, so I think under either case, so either the dynastic Egyptians built it or they didn't, right? So you have to, it's either one or the other. Um, but if you if you go with they did, then we need to reevaluate and rewrite history based on what it means and and what information they have and their capabilities. And we've got to we vastly underestimated the dynastic Egyptians. They were far more capable. And they where did they get this data from? And how did they know it? Like that's a rewrite of history. And if they didn't make it, like they for sure worked on it. But if there was something else here and this inspired them, then. That's some. That's another picture. Like, who did then? Like, so that's that's where you get to this concept of inheritance. And I, I, and this is why I'm a supporter of the lost ancient civilization hypothesis. Is that I think the vast majority of evidence favors that answer. Like, I just think there is so much evidence of renovation and reuse and imitation. Um, I think it's like a. I'd look at dynastic Egypt, and I think this this idea of them being basically a giant cargo cult, the world's most advanced cargo cult, makes a lot of sense because you got to imagine the, the other problem with the pyramids is that, you know, these are the first pyramids that were ever made, right? They're, they're like they're, that's at the very pointy end. Like it's the first ones were the best ones. The first the ones were the best ones. ones. Right. Yeah, you can the step pyramids another story. I think that is dynastic, but then immediately after the step pyramid, you have these mighty gigantic stone pyramids that were supposedly constructed but they kept making pyramids after that i mean take a look at this like so you know it's it's to me it's why i get this term a tale of two industries you have the earliest pyramids of these giant stone structures that are still standing today they kept building pyramids right through the middle kingdom but they were making them from mud brick and they were much smaller and they were much less sophisticated and they're today eroding away slowly because they were, this is how they were made. It's like this technology just disappeared if they had it. And then they were trying to imitate these other pieces of these other works with, uh, with mud bricks. And in fact, this is also supported. This, this primitive methodology is supported by scenes on the wall. Like there is a scene of pyramid building. Like 
But it's mud bricks. It's literally, it's in the tomb of the nobles on the west bank of the Nile. How do they make the mud bricks? Well, they'd put together these mud, they'd bake them in the sun, or they might have baked them in ovens, and they'd make these big mud bricks, and then they'd transport them to, you know, it's like straw or hay and, and mud, and mm-hmm. you, you, you know, you bake it, and you stick it in a mold, and you cook it. Geopolymer, people, it's probably what it is. It's, <laughs> a form, it's a form of geopolymer. And then they'd stack them up, and, and they'd build it that way. And that's so... It's a process that continues to this day, people doing stuff that way. But that's how they built them. And so what's interesting to me is is that this concept that, you know, there's a there's an advanced version of a particular thing, pyramids is one of them, and a primitive version of a particular thing that matches the tools and techniques that we know about, right? We know that they were relatively primitive. They didn't use the wheel. They, they used manpower. They used primitive tools like flint chisels and pounding stones and, you know, wooden implements for this sort of stuff. That... That dike, and there's scenes on the wall that support it, right? So we have they they showed us how they did it. That that exact set of circumstances exists not only for pyramids, but it exists for for vases, for mm-hmm. columns, for boxes, for slabs. There's an advanced, and then there's a primitive version of that. And I've been slowly trying to document that in detail um, over the last couple of years, and look at each category of these and say, okay, so what matches what they the tools that we know they could use and the techniques that we know that they used and the stuff they drew on the walls that showed us how they did it versus the stuff that isn't explainable via those mechanisms. And so that's why I think there's, when you look at these advanced things and you look at what the dynastic Egyptians were doing and you look at their own history and what they say about their past, all of a sudden this idea of inheritance, you know, and a longer timeline, the fact that maybe they got a kickstart, you know, when, when they finally came out of that 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 neolithic or, or or mesolithic stone age and they began civilization they had enough people and they could organize and they started they might have started with all of these artifacts and objects and you know i i and that's actually what they say too like they trace their own history back some thirty-six thousand years like their origin stories with the time of zeptepi when the time when the gods walked to the earth they talk about the time of the shemsu hor these mythical you know demigod-like people with magical powers, all of these rulers, they have a king's list that goes back nearly, like I said, over 36,000 years, I think. And then it gets to the dynastic civilization at the end. Who came up with the king's list? Well, there's a couple different sources. There's, um, there was an Egyptian priest called Menaeus that, that, that talked about it. The, probably the, most, the primary source for that is something called the Turin Papyrus. There's also a Sumerian king's list that's different. It goes like back 400,000 years or something. Um, but there's a, a Turin papyrus, which is which is where this is written, and it's it's actually it's in I think it's even in Turin. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's they deciphered it on the back of a on the back of a uh, a, a piece of parchment. So it's it's it was we're lucky we've got that much of it because it was it's quite a long story about how that thing came to be. It was falling apart, and they managed to put most of it back together. But there's a couple different sources for that king's list, uh, you know, and not only that they have cataclysm origin stories like they they they're this the story of atlantis comes to us from egypt that's entirely the source for that is all in egypt oh really yeah i mean that well that's where so, so plato mm-hmm. in roughly two or three hundred bc or thereabouts you know he talks about it in the timaeus and critias dialogues that's how we get the story that's <clears> the, that's probably the best account we have of atlantis that comes from his ancestor solon who lived around 600 BC, and he tells the story of when he was in Egypt at a temple up in the Delta. This temple doesn't exist anymore, but it was a a priest, an Egyptian priest at one of these structures at this temple in the Delta that told him the story of Atlantis and said this happened 9,000 years ago, which, so Solon's 600 BC, 
9600 BC, 11,600 years ago. That's the end of the Younger Dryas. It 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 locks right in with meltwater pulse 1B when we know the sea levels rose. So this is the the correlation. I think Graham Hancock made it. I don't know if he was the only one or he was the first. I'm not sure who, but um, you know this this relates to Atlantis and it's not. It comes from Egypt, and not only that, but it's also written on the walls of the Edfu Temple, the, the, the primeval Dejiba story. It doesn't specifically say Atlantis, but it tells a story with Toth, uh, who, who it's one of the few sort of Toth passages. I've, I've got photographs of it, actually. Uh, and they talk about the primeval land being an island that sank, and then they had to go to the, to the homeland and, and build these primeval mounds that, were, that was where all the temples would be. And, and beneath these pyramids and a lot of these other structures, you have primeval mounds, you know, it's... So it's, there's a lot of correlation to this concept of a lost civilization. Call it Atlantis, call it whatever you want. But I, that's why I think all of this evidence makes sense. So, you know, the Egyptians are connected to it. We've got the evidence of the artifacts for it. And then I think you're also, with the Egyptian iconography, you're looking at, at that as well. Because I do, I do believe there is, there is plenty of evidence that suggests a lot of these statues, not a lot, but certainly several of them, and certainly the very large ones um, w required significant technology and, and, and were beyond the capabilities of what we know about the dynastic Egyptians. So when I, when I make the case for symmetry and precision in these statues, it's a question you, I sometimes get. It's like, well, how come, if you think these statues are so old, how come they look like Egyptians or dynastic Egyptians? And I, I, th I think it's the other way around. I really do. I, th I think the dynastic Egyptians modeled themselves and their culture after that after the stuff they inherited I, I, it's th that classic iconography of what we look at and we go that's a pharaoh you know that's mm -hmm. that's if if you had inherited that there's that there's the, the poem ozymandias um was it percy shelley who wrote it it talks about a story of a desert traveler who comes in, who comes across these two vast and trunkless legs of stone standing in the desert, and ne nearby he sees a, a giant visage that's half buried with a, a sneer of cold command. Like you imagine coming along in a desert and seeing these legs and the head of this statue that was probably twelve hundred tons and ninety feet tall, just broken down, and it's looking at you, and you're like. What the hell is this? I mean, if if you had inherited these this iconography, that you would, and particularly if your culture was connected to it, like the Egyptians say they were, these are your gods, man. Like this, these right. are your gods. And mm -hmm. and one thing that doesn't really change is is in the actual tombs. So with all the beautiful artwork, and you see how the pharaohs depict themselves, that iconography of what they look like doesn't really change over the whole civilization. It's pretty similar. And they always depict themselves as being amongst the gods. The pharaohs were considered god kings, right? So it's, and then generation after generation after generation, they get more powerful and more arrogant and the hubris of it. So they would, they would, they would start to believe it, I guess, or start to claim these statues. Now, ah, this is me. I'm going to write my name on this statue. I'm going to carve my name into it. And then, you know, this is kind of what happens. It, 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 these, these artifacts and this, the iconography, becomes part of that culture and exists for 3,000 years. It becomes tightly integrated into it. These, these places probably became ceremonial places. So whether or not places like Giza or Saqqara had a functional purpose, Abu Sir for that matter, potentially had a functional purpose that had something to do with an advanced civilization, I think that's a possibility. I think it's worth investigating. But they would have become ceremonial because these, 
the dynastic Egyptians might have had a cultural memory of it, but they had no ability to to do anything with it. So it becomes ceremonial. And again, you can you can make it a correlation of that. So imagine the younger Dryas happens tomorrow. You know, touch wood, it doesn't. But <laughs> but if it happens tomorrow, within a couple generations, wipes out our civilization. Within a couple generations, I mean, we're going to be dancing around campfires like with black pieces of stone that look like a cell phone, like trying to like, oh yeah, if we dance around the right way around this, around this fire, this black piece of stone is going to tell me everything. It's, it's going to be able to talk to my ancestors. I can do, I can get all of the data. Like the technology of yesterday becomes a myth and legend and magic and, mm -hmm. and you try to capture it through ceremony. I mean, it's plasma TVs are a story you tell around a fire at some point. Right, right. So long, long winded explanation for how I think, I think it's a. I think I do think it's a viable lens with through which to try and view our past, like in particularly places like Egypt. Mm. Um, I think there's a longer time frame involved here. And then going back to some of the inscriptions that are made on some of this stuff, mm -hmm. like on especially on the boxes that are inside the pyramids, you yeah. it's it's very clear that the um, the hieroglyphs that are carved into those things are much newer than the actual boxes themselves. And the boxes are perfect, precision, the, the lines are straight, the angles are perfect. Yeah. And then you have these sort of roughly cut, roughly chiseled um, hieroglyphics or, you yeah. know, it looks like they're, they've been vandalized by a much later <laughs> civilization. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I think's happened uh, in, in a few cases. Uh, and and you know here's an example like this is um, yeah this is a great example yeah Yusuf and I in the Serapium with these which is a, a site with you know these hundred ton mm -hmm. thereabouts giant granite boxes twenty four of them or thereabouts housed in these underground galleries wonderful uh, wonderful site but you know these boxes yeah I mean I've got I've looked at them in great detail a number of them are pretty perfect like they've got ninety degree corners they're flat surfaces they're straight lines all these things you know I, I love this image of it because. You know, and, and then another another thing to point out is it's not the high relief. Yeah, it's carved in. Yeah, it's carved in. It's, yeah. Although they, the Egyptians did do high relief uh, carving uh, eventually, okay. they and and they did good carving as well. But this is a good demonstration of kind of the point that that you're making, and that I absolutely agree with. Is you know I love this image because on the corner it's tough to see with the light there, but on that corner on the right hand side you can see it's actually reflecting the light from the hallway in the stone. Like it's, it's so smooth. It's what's smooth and it's polished. And this isn't a natural property of, of granite, right? You've got to work pretty hard to get a mirror finish on it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, obviously the people who make it, they can make straight lines, they can make clean corners. But when you get to look at the writing, it's, you know, there's right. no straight lines. It's obviously the work of some dude with a chisel and a hammer. If you made this box, why would you put this on it? Yeah, you'd be, if you were the maker of the box, you'd be pissed. Um, yes. <laughs> you, you would be upset. And so if, to me, it's like uh, it's two different technologies, right? That, so the, the technology used to make the writing is primitive. It's totally achievable with hand tools. You can you can knock this out with a hammer and a chisel onto granite. And in, in places, it's even the granite's too smooth where it's skipped over. There's no straight lines. But, and and this this is this illustrates one of the issues with a lot of modern or contemporary sort of Egyptology, which is that, that the writing is the bedrock of Egyptology. Once we, once we translated hieroglyphs that, you know, the Rosetta Stone, and we were able to sort of start to translate, and that's been a huge science. It's wonderful, actually. Uh, it, it becomes the bedrock of how we date and relate objects and artifacts because it's, it's, it's whatever was written on them. Is, it's not the only way, but whatever's written on these things 
becomes the primary methodology for how we date them. So if it is written on them, so you have the name of a guy on an on an artifact, it's just like, well, well, the inference is therefore that he probably had this thing made for him, and he and therefore he might have even made the whole site. Um, it's and you know it's not the only method that's used, but it is a primary one. It's probably the first one they'd go to for dating stuff. And what's interesting, even on this box here, is 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 one of the other issues with this idea is that you actually have an empty shen ring on this box or a cartouche, which doesn't have a name in it. <laughs> so it's all carved up, and there's an empty shen ring in here. And all you'd have to do is imagine that there's the name of a pharaoh in this in this shen ring, and then the history books would say that it was this guy that made this box and probably this whole site and that's how the whole story of it, that's what ends up in a in a history textbook yeah but it's empty and we don't know who who whose name was going in here i suspect it was whoever was going to pay the priests that ran the place the most because this box was probably being sold for dedication right this is mm-hmm. the priests run this site we know there were dedica- all over the serapium there's you know that there's there's little little indentations on the walls that have you know, there were these little limestone or granite steles that you would put in there and and, dedic- and have a dedication to yourself, and this was being, a service was being sold by the priests that were running the place. Like, right. it's one of the issues with it, and you know, it goes further once you start to see this dichotomy between of technology between the artifacts themselves and you know and the and the writing. You start to see it in a lot of places, and this is a, a great example this of like to show people. Yeah, it's a Hyksos Sphinx. But you can see that the ribs are kind of being shown up by the the just the light almost is being used to the reflection to show that the rib line on this thing. But mm-hmm. then you take a close look at the hieroglyphs and they're just crudely fizzled. <laughs> like it's, you know, you see the hammer marks, you see the fact that it's it's done by hand. And here's another key indicator for me: the hieroglyphs are never polished, right? So the rest of the stone is polished, and there's obviously it's not all flat surfaces and easy polishing. There's lots of interesting. Uh, and and tight sort of parts of the stonework that that were polished, but the hieroglyphs are never polished. So, you know, for example, if you look at some of these incredible statues that come from the old kingdom, you know, you have the 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 top of the chest, the clavicle here is all beautifully done. You you have the fingernails, the the cuticles, the insides uh, of the fingernails. Right, all of that right. stonework's polished, right? This isn't flat surfaces. So they were capable of polishing. Um, stone whoever built this statue could polish stone in whatever form they wanted to there's dust all over this statue but it is polished and you know you get these beautiful examples of knees like this is one of the best knees in i mean this is in granodiorite not for nothing but incredible musculature and bone structure granite diorite granodiorite granodiorite how, how hard is that stone slightly harder than granite in some way it's like a mixture between granite and diorite and what is the hardest stone on earth diamond and diorites how far diorite's like a seven and a half so diamonds are 10 on the most scale Uh of hardness um you know things like hardened steel might be a 6.5 and and granite and granite can be a 6.5 to a seven some are diorite and flint and some of the other harder stones you know um either porphyry or or dolerite can go up to like seven and a half eight okay uh corundum uh topaz things like this are a nine and and they we have artifacts made from things like corundum (laughs) That they were shaping with a nine. I mean, it's as, and copper and bronze are like three and four finger. You know, it's, it's right. these are extreme. Marbles like a three, uh, calcite's like a three. This is why a lot of sculptures done in oh, marble okay. these days. So a statue of David much, is that marble? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, marble. It's much, much, much softer than this stuff. Like incredibly, 
Yeah, if you're if you're a modern sculptor, you ain't working in granite just because. Like it's right. it's not a good choice. Like it's you're going to burn your tools out. It's going to be a nightmare. And right. modern sculptors will know this. But you know the point is is that again, even with decent decent hieroglyphs like this, you know it's not polished, right? Even in the, even in the good hieroglyphs that are on the the side of this statue, like this the interior of the bird, not polished. The 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 the, the ring around that that uh, the king's cartouche there, uh, not straight and not polished. The lotus flower motif below it is polished. Like so, it's like when this is a different. This was done with a different technology, potentially done at an entirely different time. So it's difficult to say then that the writing is is how we can date and relate um, this artifact into the story of history. It's entirely possible that this was inherited. We don't know how old it is, and then somebody wrote their name on it later and claimed it. And in fact, we have evidence of that very thing. Um, in fact, here's one more good example of the polish. I like this shot because it shows you the polished stone, and then that you know you can oh, see yeah. the chisel marks. This is all this uh, these these hieroglyphs. They're good, but they're all done by hand, you know. And we know that the practice of writing of somebody usurping an artifact, Ramses Flinders Petrie called Ramses II the Great Usurper. He's mm -hmm. one of the people think about him as one of the most powerful kings of ancient Egypt. Uh, he but he was notorious for, for writing his name on stuff. This is this is an example here I can show you real quick. It's like that's the cartouche of Ramses II right here. Um, this big guy here, it's, it's carved in very deeply mm -hmm. into, uh, and I actually love this photograph. It's He's carved it deeply into what is a reused section of an obelisk. But look closely at the end here. Oh, yeah, that bird? He's carving over the top of a pre-existing inscription. So you can see it here where he's blending in. They got quite good at like writing over the top and like blending in his stuff into a pre-existing inscription. Oh, wow. And I mean, there's artifacts with two or three or four even different pharaohs names on them. Uh, and he would, Ramses became notorious. He, he would carve his stuff really deeply because he didn't want other people doing to him that he would, what he was doing to mm -hmm. others. But, you know, what I love about this particular picture is you're actually looking at two or three different reuses of a particular artifact, right? So this piece of stone was originally probably part of a of an obelisk, right? It's a broken piece of an obelisk. They had a place called Tanis, which is literally was forested with obelisks and columns. And if you've seen obelisks, the ones that have writing on them, the writing's vertical, right? It's not horizontal. It's vertical. Yes, when it's when the obelisks are yeah, standing, standing up. up right? Yeah. So the writing on so, so this isn't original writing. So not only did this obelisk break, this thing was originally standing up vertically. Yeah, it was, it's a piece of an obelisk, most likely. Yeah. And so it was re and and they were reused. There's even like these walls that they built in the, at Tanis. I mean, there's a foot from a thousand ton statue that's been repurposed into a block in a wall. So they were reusing broken pieces of stones in walls. So not only did they, they reused it once as a, as a block in a wall, then someone wrote something on it the first time. And then later on, who knows how long later, Ramses II comes, comes along and, and writes over it again. So this thing's been in inherited, renovated and reused like two or three different times. Mm. And it's written on horizontally. So, And all the vertical obelisks are written on vertically. The ones that have writing on them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's hard to say, how can you take this cartouche and say, well, Ramsey's had this block of stone quarried and shipped to the side and, and you know, we don't know that. We, it's, you can't date the stonework. So it's just, it's a great example of inheritance and reuse. What are the people saying that push back against this? It's football season, baby, and you know what time it is. Time to gamble all that hard-earned money on some sports. 
As a better, you demand perfection, and that's where my bookie delivers. NFL, college football, and a brand new cash out system give you the options to bet and win all season long. First two legs of your parlay already hit, you can cash it out early and place another bet, or sweat it out and let it ride for a chance at an even bigger payday. Join the MyBookie family for an entire season filled with daily odds boosts, same-day parlays, and super contests. And this season, MyBookie has a no-strings-attached cash bonus that lets you deposit and withdraw quick. Use the promo code DJP on a deposit of $50 or more, and you can receive up to $200 cash instantly into your MyBookie account. Bet your deposit amount once, and you're ready to withdraw at any time. Again, that's promo code DJP to claim your cash deposit bonus. You can bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with my bookie. Like, how do they how do they defend this when confronted with some of this stuff? Well, I mean, with the inheritance, I mean, the reuse of stuff, it's not really defended. It's it is it's not. I mean, it's not like trumpeted as a as a common thing, but it, it's. It's acknowledged that yeah, Ramses would would reuse stuff, but it's it's kind of a weird. It's only in certain cases where they have very specific. Oh, okay, we've got three names of, of rulers on this artifact, so therefore this is probably older. He might have he might have renovated this, but they don't. Yeah, they don't they don't they don't really acknowledge it as a as a possibility for a lot of the stuff. And I think it it is even the statues. Like there's the big statues at Luxor have the names of two or three different pharaohs on some of them. Um. They just don't, I mean, one of the problems with, I mean, I hate to use the term, but it's just like mainstream or orthodox Egyptology is that they don't really consider the engineering aspects of the stonework. They don't, they don't care about precision or symmetry. They don't care about, you know, the, the, the vase scan work, for example, that we've been doing. It's not, it's not really factoring into the decision making. You know, they, they look at who's written on it. They look at what scenes are on the wall they look at the other data they can t- do to support and say that's well that's where it is uh I, I you know i genuinely don't don't know how they think about this i mean for sure they they'd probably point to the fact well you know where the, you get the same sort of questions like where are the tools and you know where's where's all the structures and all that stuff i think i think we're looking at some of the structures i think we're looking at but we're looking through the lens of of thousands and thousands of years of renovation reuse remodeling and then thousands and thousands of years of destruction and quarrying and you know it's 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 a really difficult picture to put together uh particularly in egypt because it's you know the people even within their own civilization they were reusing stuff but who knows when it started but they kept reusing and rebuilding and changing the sites and then for thousands and thousands of years after they've been used as quarries for stone Mm. people take the stone and they chop it up and they they, it's all a great source for granite, you know. Even even during the Egyptian civilization, this was happening. Ramses II was quarrying granite from the Middle Pyramid at Giza to go use in some of his other structures at like Lisht and a couple of other places. And it's written on the wall at the at the pyramid. It's like, I am the quarry master for Ramses II, and we were taking the stone from here because he's the boss, you know. What what was the original uh, stone that was that was casing like the very outer shell of the pyramids. There was like a very well, white, shiny stone. Yeah, so it depends. There's the Great Pyramid and and most of the Middle Pyramid was 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 something called Tura limestone. Okay. Yeah. And in I, fact, there's you know Mount Nemrut in, in Turkey is is also made from Tura. It's it's a very hard form of limestone, and yeah, it's it's very white and pure. So that's a it's a it, it's not it's not a local stone. They had to get it from a quarry a distance away. And who stripped all that off? Well. 
a lot of it was probably done during the started really with the Persian occupation, um, but everybody, <laughs> right? Anyone that could, it wasn't in, so the, the the pyramid. The story goes is that there was a, you know, the pyramid had its casing stones, and they were they're all they're locked like you couldn't get a, a bar in there to pry, and they're huge. You know, they're like three, four. Some of the casing stones are bigger than the other blocks, so that might some of those might have been four or five tons. Uh, funnily enough, the middle pyramid actually has giant blocks in its construction too on the, even on the outside like 50 60 ton blocks but the story goes that it was i think there was an earthquake and i'm probably going to get the date wrong uh, 400ish ad there was a big earthquake it might have been even earlier than that but it shook loose a couple of these casing stones so it, it either tilted them or it busted one out and a big shake up and some stuff mm -hmm. fell off and then that gave people purchase to like scaffold their way up there and scurry up there and then start prying these things out and then just and just like letting them fall letting down. them fall Jesus. and then they were just it went from there and you know it's a valuable stone it's it's obviously useful uh for all sorts of purposes but one of its main purposes was you could grind it up and make like a plaster out of it you grind it up mix it with water and you make a, a fine plaster that you can plaster over things and carve into and i mean Literally, the only reason we, we have a few casing stones still left on the pyramid is because of the piles of quarry rubble. Like the, there was 50, 60 feet of quarry rubble pushed up against the base of the pyramid from all of the quarrying activity that covered up the few remaining casing stones that were still at the bottom. At the bottom. Yeah. Flinders Petrie um, always decried this and, and, and he was always admonishing people for this because he'd said it's literally, it was, and this is literally like a hundred to 130, 40 years ago at all of these places. He said, does everyone who's anybody has a headstone made from the stuff, like the stone from the pyramid. And every day there's just camel trains and camel trains of people taking stone uh, all the time. And he dug, he actually excavated through the rubble. He found the casing stones, he documented them and then he reburied them. He's like, I, if I leave this open, it's going to be gone. No, no, no question. So he reburied it and was like, they'll have to work to get to that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just people don't care. Most, most people are just interested in enriching themselves. They're not that worried about taking the stone. But it's, it's, human, it's a human nature thing. Um, but you get to, you know, the middle pyramid, the bottom two courses, maybe the first, maybe also the second, for sure the first, was cased in granite. Like literally all of those casing stones were granite. The bottom layers, like the bottom two layers. It's mm -hmm. it's really cool. Um, in fact, I have a, I probably have a picture of it here. Yeah, so this, this is the bottom pyramid here. So these are, these casing stones are like the same shape as, as, uh, as, as the ones on the other pyramid, but these are granite and they're huge and they're, they're perfect. These, if you walk around the middle pyramid, it's littered with these amazing casing stones and you see this dashed line that's in this. Yeah. That's an attempt to quarry it. In fact, it's, they were looking to split this whole face off it and get to this square block behind it. So this is, this is you see this everywhere on these sites, and people are like, what are those dashed lines? It's it's quarrying. It's it's called a wedge and chisel. So you'd hammer, you'd use like steel chisels, you'd just hammer away at it. You'd create these wet these these divots, and then you'd get wood or something, or you can sometimes use stone too, like flint. But wood was good because you'd pound wood into it, and then you'd wet it. And when wood gets wet, it swells. Mm. So it would pr uh, provide pressure on the stone. And then you would get a lot of these flint chisels or steel chisels and just hammer into these gaps. And you're, what you're trying to do is crack the stone along that yeah. line yep. and take a piece. Um, and yeah, I mean, these things were perfect. You know, these, 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 these um, 
these uh these casing stones were, were perfect with their angle and they're all they're all polished on the outside and they just i mean there's tons of it just from quarry rubble talking about the boxes i was it's funny i was reading um I was reading Chris's book this morning, his first one, the Giza Death Star or the Giza Power Plant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was saying how he interviewed one of the, or he talked to um, like the guy who ran the biggest granite manufacturing company yep. in the US. And uh, he asked them what it would take, what the resources would be to reproduce one of those massive granite blocks that were basically hollowed out on the inside. Mm -hmm. And the guy, the guy said it would take at least two thousand dollars just to quarry it. Not more than it was two hundred thousand. That's what I meant. Two hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah. two hundred thousand dollars just to quarry it. Another like fifty thousand dollars to transport it. Easy. And then he was like. It would make no sense for us to hollow it out, hollow out a single piece. We would just take four or five pieces and we would bolt them all together. That's right. He's like, we would never just hollow it out. Like they that. couldn't. Well, you need to. You'd need to develop the tool. Like they, modern granite processing, we we can we cut slabs. You know, right. We right. quarry them out of the quarry in like big blocks, and then we cut them into slabs for kitchen counters or, or what other use. Um, mm. You know, when you talk about doing granite sculpture. Which happens, people do do like complex shapes and granite. It takes very specific tools. And man, yeah, hollowing out a slump, a, a single piece of granite like that mm. would, would cost a bomb in, in, in mm. the tooling to make that happen. You burn out all half your you know, tools trying to do that's a big volume of space. But yeah, that's, and these, and remember these prices are like, I mean, when do you write that book? The 90s? I mean, right. You know, so that's got prices. Probably double that easy since then to, to and do then this. the saw cuts too, like the 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 saw cuts, then the errors in the saw cuts. Like if you take a if you take a skill saw and you're trying to cut something and you you go into it and you realize oh you you got the angle wrong, you pull it out real quick and then you go back in and make another cut. Mm -hmm. There's evidence for this. Yeah, but if you're doing it slowly with whatever methods they have, they they claim they had to cut those stones. You wouldn't be going the wrong way, then pull back out and then start going the right way. You would <laughs> right. obviously be going so slow that you would be able to make adjustments along the way. That's right. And there's, there's plenty of evidence for overcuts and exactly that type of thing um, is, is one of the reasons why I think, look, that we're seeing evidence for, call them power tools, call them just powerful tools that were cutting incredibly hard stone. And that's, that's, that's one of the best. I have, uh, we can look at some of those images, if you like, of, of tooling. I mean, you know, not just just cuts. You see these cuts all over the place. I, mean, I don't know if this is this is all broken up stone now, but you know, there's these these types of things you see mm -hmm. all over it at um, at uh, this is on the basalt pavement. But one of the one of my favorite ones is actually I really like the edge of this thing. It's a slab at um, at uh, at um, uh, Abu Sia. It's this beautiful slab. And if you look along the edge, it's been like just finely touched with some sort of powerful tool that's sort of been backed out. It's got, you know, it's, this thing's got markings all over. You have these giant circular saw depressions here and here. Good Lord. Um, you know, you can look at how many times this thing's been touched on. What is this made of? Uh, you know, this is, I think it's schist. I, I think okay. it's schist or it's, or it's blue quartzite maybe. It's a mm -hmm. very unique piece. I'm amazed it's still there mm. because you get, a couple of people could probably move it. Um and it's it's just a remarkable uh, piece of stone. Let's see where else you got. Yeah, so Juice is pointing out the, the big circular orientation. All the colors come out of it when you wet it. We usually wet this one and show people. And it was actually, so it was cut right through here at the end and then snapped off. You can see that on the end here. Mm -hmm. Cut straight through. Uh, you know, here's some other looks at the circular saw marks on this thing. Absolutely amazing uh, tooling marks in this. Perfectly and, straight. 
Yeah, and you you have uh, let me look. I think I think it's in statues. I want to show you uh, the overcuts. Yeah, I mean you have stuff like this, right? So this is at, at Karnak Temple. I just did a video on this. These this is in an obelisk, and you literally have circular saw overcuts, and you you know you see them on statues too, but. You can literally see on this one here where where it was exactly what you were talking about. Like oh it, yeah, you see right there. Yeah, it was reset. Like the angle of the cut was reset. Yep. And it was some sort of giant circular saw because they start narrow. You know, they start here and they penetrate and they get deeper, and then they they peter out at the bottom. Like they, it's the the profile fits a, a big circular saw. And in in fact, I've I've there's some more of these at Karnak, and I do this in the video, but I've plumbed them with like a key card where you. You know, you can show the depth increasing. You show the profile of a circular, um, a circular saw cut. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it's so the, the depth, the the depth varies from yeah. the middle being the deepest, and then it gets shallower towards the ends. Yeah, I mean, this is a classic um, example of a, a circular saw cut. You see this here, right? Mm. I mean, it's just it's hard to. They had straight saws too. There's this. I should say that it's not all circular saws. There, mm. there was absolutely straight saws too. This piece in, in is very interesting. This is at a place called Aberwash. If Chris Dunn does talk about this in his book, a lot of people have talked about this. I think even maybe Petrie talked about it. Mm -hmm. But you see how it's it it's you clearly can see the orientation of the saw, right? Mm -hmm. Here's the crazy thing to think about this piece: it's concave. It's see this line in the center here. You can actually see it here. See this kerf? Yes. So the the, the sh it's shaped like this. It's it's concave. So it's cut this way, and it seems to have been cut this way. So it's it, it's not straight. So what I think you're looking at is a two-stage machining process here where they cut, and this is where this is where that concavity ends here. Like you can see it gets deeper and then shallows mm -hmm. out. Yep. So they cut it sideways through this, and then it's almost as if they ran a, a circular saw this way and they, and they just pushed the block through like this. So it was digging out that profile as it went through. But there's this. It's hard to see in the photos, but it's it's entirely there. And and, and again, you see the striations in the stone mm -hmm. from the cutting um, mechanism. Right, right. The little grooves. This is in very sophisticated machining in stone. Like I don't know what the purpose was for this. Whether this was, uh, it could have been part of a box. They didn't cut all the way through the stone. Um, I don't know. Uh, here's another good. That's just good stuff like this. Yeah, like you know. I mean, we're blowing Stephen's mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this I've got endless examples of this, and it. it I mean, I like this one too. <laughs> but it's you can see it's just been, and you actually look close to you can actually see the striations, like, like the the individual cut lines. So this, it gets really interesting with this because yeah. you know the, these a lot of these saw marks, the basalt ones, and again basalt being kind of as hard, if not a little harder than granite, are in these are in what's this basalt pavement that's to the east of the Great Pyramid. And it's on the sides because they would they would finish the, the top and it was perfectly flat. In fact, it's it's a wondrous um, application of stonework. But over the years, and well, millennia, it's been falling apart. In fact, as they even built a – back in the day, they built a road – they had a road over it. Like they literally put down a road over the top of this basalt pavement. They've taken the road away now. But at the sides of this thing where it's falling apart, you can see where they were rough shaping the blocks, right? There, there was different, there was different types of tools. It seems to me, the quarry, there was like the scoop marks in the quarry. They were looking to remove stone quickly, and they didn't care. It wasn't precise. They're like scooping stuff out to get out as much material as possible so they can get the block out. Then they had the rough shaping of stone, where they were cutting out the the 
kind of the, the general dimensions of the block. And we might be looking at that with this, where they're just cutting on the side and, okay, we, we want to get this down to this point. And then they were then there was a capability to, to just perfectly finish the stone, like fine polishing, fine machining, doing those fine little touches to get those precision surfaces and then a polish to make it kind of like that mirror finish. So there's different levels and, and these were done in different places. Uh, and what's interesting with the, the stone cutting is that we don't have a good explanation for this. It's that there's tube drilling kind of falls under this too, but the stone cutting is like the the explanation is that it was a, it was it was grinding with um like a copper drag saw you'd call it like it's like a, a V-shaped copper bar you put sand and water and you grind and grind and grind right mm -hmm. so you you just sit there and grind and grind and grind and the problem with that is, is that it doesn't, it doesn't leave. There's videos of this, right? Yeah, yeah. Trying Mark, to do this, Mark Laner, and 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 it's, legit, I mean, it's a good experiment. There's there's nothing wrong with the experiment. Um, so Mark Laner and a guy named Dennis Stocks. Mark Laner's a famous Egyptologist. Dennis Stocks is an experimental Egyptologist who who does actually do these sort of experiments, and it's it's great because we get some data from his work. But there's there's a few problems with it. One is it doesn't leave the same signature. Secondly, you don't get overcuts. You, you don't get these narrow cuts like these. Like you're not going to get this sort of stuff no. with that because it's V-shaped, right? And, and, and based on that data though, from Dennis and other people, we have, we have data on how long it takes to do this. And it's something like two, look, let's round it off and say, this thing is a little tiny bit over, but about two millimeters per hour, right? With, and, with that grinding technique, yeah, and that's and that varies based on the length of the cut. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the longer the cut, the slower you go. So two millimeters, roughly two and a half or whatever millimeters per hour. It's very very slow is the, is the takeaway. And at the same time, you lose copper. Like you, the grinding because it's the quartz sand that's doing the cutting. The copper's mm -hmm. kind of you could use horn or potentially even wood, but even using copper, you you lose copper at a tremendous rate. So you lose almost as much, if not more, copper than you than you're actually getting from from cutting the stone. And it's a very slow rate. So A, with that slow rate, you'd have to grind away for hours to get these sort of overcuts that we see for starters. So it's as a, and again, as you said, it's, you're probably not gonna you're probably not gonna make that mistake and and sit there and do keep doing that mistake for hours and hours to get an overcut. Like, <laughs> all right, Johnson, you're in trouble. Bro. Like, and secondly, I have yet to do the math, but I I really I plan on. I'd love to do this. Um, I've said it a few times now, but. I want to scale this up to see what is the the in, at an industrial scale can the stuff because we know you can kind of calculate how many blocks how much granite was cut you can probably get to a rough figure of of how much tonnage of granite say just at Giza or maybe just on the middle pyramid complex I don't know okay but you know Chris Dunn kind of calculated it as, just to give you an example there's there's a box inside the middle pyramid right it's there's a box in the room kind of like the box in the king's chamber it's a little bigger a little longer like maybe eight feet long and you know three or four feet wide, and based on Dennis Stocks's experiments, purely to make the the primary cuts on that block of granite. So, assume you quarry the granite takes God knows how long, but just to make like the north, south, east, west, top and bottom cuts, right? To to shape the box using the data that we've got from guys like Dennis Stocks would take something like two hundred and sixty-seven days of mm -hmm. continuous grinding 24 hours a day just just to just to shape that one box mm -hmm. and that doesn't include hollowing it out because again it's a single piece box right it's been hollowed out it's been finished perfectly you've got tube drills in it it's got it's all shaped and decorated and there's who knows how much work in doing that as well so it's just like you really think you could scale up and do like 
hundreds of thousands of tons worth of granite right. work using this and where's all the copper dust where where is it like there's tons and tons and tons and tons of copper must have been here to do this and yeah so i didn't they analyze that p that famous core the petri's core and i think uh in chris's book i think i read this also where they took a modern day tube drill yeah. and they basically estimated a, based on the the rings going around the yeah. outer edge of the tube the core that came out that mm -hmm. they estimated that the drill would have been 500 times more powerful than any it's, modern drills so based on yeah so in fact this is petrie's core uh, <clears throat> where i've got another image of it here let's see where's the other one this no that's not it this one will do it's fine same thing um let's go computer okay so yeah that's petrie's core number seven there so mm -hmm. it, it's it's yes yeah, so, Petri, and it's called Petrie's Core Number Seven because Flinders Petrie discovered it, right. and it's Exhibit Number Seven right. on his. And this is the one that's been studied. So he calculated, he looked at it, and he determined that this spiral groove that's on the stone has a what you'd call a one in sixty penetration rate, right? So if you take that, if you unwind that spiral travel, you make stick it out in a straight line. Mm -hmm. For every sixty inches of horizontal travel, you're getting an inch of vertical travel, one in sixty. Right. Okay. Chris Dunn has since. I think refined that a bit. It's not quite as deep. It's not quite. It's a little less than one in sixty. It's it's in the ballpark. And yeah, so so based. And then when you compare that to our modern tools, that's a five. It, it essentially rounds out to being about five hundred times greater penetration rate into stone than we can achieve. And that's not to say that it it may have moved very slowly doing this, or it, our our stuff spins really fast. You know, mm -hmm. so it's not penetrating it as fast per. You know, you don't get a one in sixty penetration rate, but it's our stuff can still maybe cut the stone pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But the actual penetration rate, based on the motion of the drill, isn't anything like what we're seeing in the stone here, which is, oh, which is crazy. And and you know, there are there are a number of these cores. Um, I I, Peach, I've talked a lot about this this core, as is Chris, and and I and you, I'm sure when you get Chris in, he'll he'll talk about it too. But I I consider the case is closed, bro. Like it's yeah, they did a latex mold of it, and he is proven without any doubt that it's a spiral groove that the problem has always been uh the, the 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 claim that it's a spiral groove for the, that's the one thing that no one in i guess mainstream egyptology will admit and they go to great lengths to try and obfuscate this idea that it's a spiral groove but it has been definitively proved by the petri museum no less and chris dunn who were both responsible for the, the latex core mm -hmm. uh experiment which is this one so they made a, in fact, here's, they made a latex core of it, right? So this is this latex mold. Chris, Chris stamped the latex mold with these notches, cut them, cut it open with these notches, and then here's it's showing you the notch detail in these blow-ups next to these these little arrows, right? So you can draw a straight line between these notches, which would make which is the horizontal line, okay? The okay. straight lines are the horizontal line between the notches, same spot. So it goes to the bottom of the notch, it goes to the bottom of the notch, same down here, bottom of the notch, and then. What you're seeing is is these dotted lines are tracing the individual spiral or or individual grooves. And in every case that we look at here, it starts above the line and it ends up below the line. So it's there is it is spiral, right? Mm -hmm. So it's higher here, it's lower here. It's higher here, it's lower here, et cetera, et cetera. It's geometrically prove, proves this is a spiral groove. Mm -hmm. That said, and the length between each groove is exactly the same, right? The width. Oh, that's what I meant. Yeah, the width. Uh, not really. That no. it seems. Well, it's it's Petrie described as a drunken screw. There there are, <laughs> there are some crossover. It seems to have been 
more than one cutting point. So there was oh. there was multiple cutting points. So oh, there okay. might have been some crossover. And <clears throat> you know, I I people speculate all day about this. It, it is, and the other thing to note about this is that it's actually tapered. So it's it's tough to see. You can kind of see it. See how it's tapered. Right. Yep. yep right. Yep. So it, it narrows down, and this thing's upside down. So this is probably where it's it's fatter at the bottom. This is it's upside down. It snaps off here. Mm-hmm. And so you got to imagine the, the holes that they come out of are straight, right? And it's tapered. So it tells us that the tool itself was probably tapered. Right. Which means that it's shaped like this. So as it goes, it's cutting down. It's cutting down. It's cutting down. It's cutting on all surfaces. And then, so a lot of this is where I, I, people say, well, you know, this this groove could have been made when they retracted the tool, like it unscrewed itself. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that isn't how it would work if it was tapered. So if it's tapered, it's going to conform to the granite's conforming to the shape of the tool. And then the second you move it up at all, it loses contact with the stone because it's ta- the angle changes, right? It's it's narrower at the at the top and it's wider at the bottom. So once you get down and you're finished. You lift it up a bit, and then all of a sudden, it's the tool's going to be wider right at that point where it, when you lift it up. So it's not actually touching the stone. It doesn't unscrew; it just lifts out. Mm. It can't. I don't think. I don't think unscrewing it or, or, or removing the tool will give you the um, the spiral groove. Plus, look, it you you don't. It it takes quite a lot of force to cut to cut into granite like this. It's not just a. It's not just a simple. You're not scratching granite and leaving a deep groove like we see in these tubes. It's not just in the. You know, it's not just in the uh, in in the in the drills, but we see it in these holes too. You, mm-hmm. see, you have these deep grooves in the holes, um, and you see this all over the place with with uh, as many. Now, is that an example of like them doing a core drill used to split a piece of stone? Well, I don't think it's used to split to split a piece of stone so much as they were sought out to then uh, to then split stone. You know what I'm saying? Like they 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 were. I think the people that were quarrying um, the blocks. Were looking for these, oh. and then they would they would try and split them along the angle of the tube drill. You know, I'm sorry, along the axis of the tube drill. You see it all. There's lots of complete holes uh, like <clears> that <throat> haven't been split. And in fact, you see on the back of the stones, you see that dashed line, which is a which is a. I mean, that's a, a technique that started. I mean, they were the earliest. We know they were using it in like the the New Kingdom, but these tube drill holes go back way further. And the oldest types, of, we don't see that quarrying method way back in the day. We, it's like the oldest quarrying method seems to be the scoop method at the quarry, which is kind like of like an weird. ice cream scoop. Yeah, um, and but I think they were looking for them. Like for example, here's a giant tube drill. Right? This is a nine inch one at, at Karnak, and this stone's been split along its axis. Right. So so, I, so later later civilizations found these things and used that to try to yeah, split yeah because because it's a natural weakness in the stone and you yeah. can split them. So you see a lot of tube drills that are in fact split. But you see plenty that are that are whole as well, and when we know they're whole originally, because we have the drill cores. Can we look at some pictures of these scoop marks? Yeah. Uh, actually, this is a good point. Yeah, I don't know if I have. Uh, let's just go straight to that. Quarry. And also, I forgot to ask you, mm. what do you speculate that these saw blades could have been made of? Uh I. <laughs> It's it's less maybe what they were made of than what technology they were using. I, I mean, you know, Petrie speculated that it could have been. He's like diamond would fit the bill, you know, like it's because he was looking. It's a bronze embedded with gemstones or something. But he's like, there's no evidence for diamond use, and he's right. There's no evidence for diamond use in Egypt. We we see no diamonds. It's not written about. Would there be leftover fragments of diamonds? Yeah, you find something. There's literally yeah. been zero. And and as far as gemstones go. 
As well, as far as gemstones go, the gymnastic Egyptians sort of prized coloured stones. So diamonds wouldn't have been precious from that perspective. I mean, who knows? Maybe they did use them. We just don't have any evidence for it. But mm. I don't look. I don't know what it was using. It, it could any uh, corundum or hardened substance. Mm. But it could have. Like I, I look at the stuff. I don't think there was pure mechanical force involved. I think there's something else going on. Um, like how though? Well. That's the Could speculation. They soften right? the stones. There's uh, who knows. Were they changing the molecular properties of the stone? Were they using ultrasonics? Were they? I mean, you go, you have to go back to the legends. Plasmoids. Of, have you ever heard of <laughs> plasmoids? <laughs> well, <laughs> it could have been plasmoids. I don't know. I mean, this is where it's we speculate. I just that's and that's why I think it's interesting to 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 be open minded about what we see on these sites and and research it as best we let's use our best tools. Let's microscopically analyze the rock. Let's look at it <clears throat> in with being open minded to any possibility because we might learn something you know i think you go back in time that the legend of the shamir is very interesting you ever heard this story no. like the uh, the solomon's temple and shamir and all this so it's well the shamir i'm not that well versed in this you should really have you know russ and kyle the who are those guys snake bros like, oh, the snake bros. yeah they would meaning, be great to reach man. out to those guys yeah, fantastic and russ really knows this stuff inside out but so there, there's stories in I think it's associated with King Solomon about the stories of something called a shamir, which it, it essentially it's think of it as like a lightsaber that just cuts through stone. Less people cut through very hard stone. It's oft sometimes described as a worm, um, but there's this consistent story of this artifact called a shamir that 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 is like allegedly would let you. Yeah, I, I like to think of it as like this lightsaber that just cuts through stone, and you could people could cut really hard stone dude. with it. It comes out of history. So it's like, was this left over from these times? I don't know. I don't know. And it's, it's, I, I try not thinking about it in terms of diamond blades though, is like, it's like thinking about it, looking in the mirror, like, like we can't assume that they did shit the way that we do shit. Right. This is what we've been talking about with Randall for the yeah. past few days. Yeah, it is. And I, I think that's the right approach. Like it's, it's a tempting and natural thing to, to look at a problem. We look at these challenges and we go, this is how, this is fit how we would box. do it, right. fit it into our box. And, mm -hmm. Again, I just think that there's there's avenues of technology that we are yet to learn about that we will know more about in time, and 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 I think it's it's hard to do, but it's like here's our perspective and here's everything we know, but some of the answers might be out here. Like it's right. just, and that's what being open minded about it and 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 not just dismissing stuff right. and scoffing at it, and then researching it with some of those possibilities in mind. We might even learn something eventually from it. That's that's what I want to do. It's. I'm going to, people always like, well, what, what is it and what, what's the speculation and of how it does? You can speculate all over the place. Chris Dunn's new book, if you've got to it, the Serapium chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, all, I'm like a quarter of the way through it. I got to finish it. I can't. Serap I can't. He does some amazing speculation. I'm not going to spoil really? it. Really? Oh, oh God. God. I'd love it. It's, it's, I, he sent me the Serapium chapter because I'd helped him with some stuff for it before he wrote it. And now and I, I'm writing it like a, a recommendation for it. So I've got the book too. It comes out early next New Year, next right. New Year for January or something. January twenty four. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for people. Ooh. Get them salts, baby. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, and then, um, <laughs> and and he does. I just I love where he goes with it. But it's the the with speculation. It you know the world. It's an imagination at that point. You, you, you know. That does he talk about these lightsabers? I don't. I haven't seen him mention specifically the Shamir. He's talking about more about a potential technological application for the boxes. Oh, a technological application. Yeah, like, like what? Like, and, oh, and so that's I, something I've always thought about too. Yeah. So here's here's another way to think of it, and I like this idea too. Is that and because this relates to 
Uh, he does talk about this, and this isn't giving the game away here, but it's like if you consider the idea, you heard of like the, con- the concept of a, an assembler. Like an assembler? Mo- assembler. Like this is, imagine we, we get nanotech down to the point, and this is entirely plausible if you just project technology forward, where you create these microscopic machines that can essentially assemble themselves, or they can, they're almost like a von Neumann probe or something like that, but at the tiniest level, where you can use molecular- A von cons- Neumann probe. Yeah, it's like a self-replicating probe. Imagine you send I mean, some interesting books been written on that topic. Yeah, it's like you send a probe out into space, but it has the capability to replicate itself. Okay. And just by using the material that it finds and then, you know, project forward a thousand years and see what happens. Sort of uh-huh. um, but y- imagine you get to the point where, where we have these mole- like microscopic, microscopic machines that can, they're assemblers that can take molecular material, even at the atomic level and, and, and assemble things and even replicate themselves. So you could build anything, but it's it's being done with technology that's so small you can't see it, right? There's there's that's this this concept. It's been proposed by a number of sci-fi authors and people that have mm-hmm. thought about technology. Yeah, and it's like that's that's one scale of things, and the other scale of things to think about as well. If you if you you go out and you think about um, you know Dyson spheres and and things like that that are that are almost galactic in scope or, or so, the size of a solar system in terms of a machine that does a particular thing. It's an it's just an interesting way of thinking and looking at technology. We we look at it and we go, here's a box, and how would we cut this box and make this box? But but it's it's possible, whether it's plausible or not, I don't know. But it's possible that the answers to some of these questions could be so small we can't see them, or so large we can't comprehend them. Like that's just the nature yeah. of technology. Like we just don't, you know, you can throw simulation theory into that too. The idea that we're all just part of some simulation running on the computers of the future. But that's <clears throat> it's all. It's just projections of technology, and I'm just. This is all pure speculation. So it's that's that's one of the challenges with speculation is that it becomes this 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 just um, endless endless imagination of possibilities. But I, I do try to focus on sort of following the evidence and, and looking at at what you know some of the answers might be based on the the evidence that we have uh, in front of us, and and it's fun to speculate. And I'm gonna yeah. I'm in the process of writing a book too, and I will speculate, give my speculation in there as well about what it might be but i always try to be real clear about when i'm speculating because mm. it's as soon as you speculate you people are like look he's crazy you think oh, this yeah. is the moon's a spaceship or something oh yeah we did a, <laughs> our last podcast we were talking about the moon and somebody uh took a video and made some crazy <laughs> some crazy reaction video about oh it. yeah <laughs> yeah gotta love that react model um yeah. i gotta pee real quick all right he's uh they've really figured out their construction guys and is, it, is it two guys russ and kyle brothers okay. yeah they uh they've Really figured out some really cool shit on um, how some of this architecture might have been made. Because, you know, these blocks that go around the corners, you know how in like Giza, the blocks kind of go around the corner, like mm. where they're cut and then they go around. They're not like cut and just bricks in the corner. They, they curve around. But he's they've sort of worked out how that was probably done. And they have a really good method for showing people. They've some, made some really astute observations on like how the pyramids were built and how these big granite structures were built. And those, do those guys go out there a lot? Go with me, yeah. They come with me next year, and I've taken them out twice. Yeah, the, the two times I've been to Egypt, they went with me. Mm. Yeah, so I like to tour with them because we we also jam. <laughs> oh, do you really? Yeah, yeah. We play. We those guys are fantastic. Well, particularly Kyle, amazing musician. Um, I use some of it. If you watch the, that Karnak video, the song at the end. Did you get to the end of it? Like the the that's it's just, which video? The most recent one, Karnak. Right at the end, there's like a music 
is like a song at the end. Yeah, the last like ten minutes of it is yeah. like a song. Yes, Kyle, I remember that. Yeah, that's Kyle's music. Like, oh no shit! Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, but we jam and and they're good. And I'm not. They're more uh, like it's. They help me to manage the group, and then also, I mean, they're just more social and personable than me most of the time. <laughs> I'm yeah, a bit more serious. I'm happy to have conversations, but those guys are they're funny. Fun. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's great. We we work together really well. So yeah, but one of the things, like getting back to those boxes, I wonder, like, was the technology just so hyper advanced that like making something that precise didn't wasn't a big deal? Like, if if some culture came along a million years from now, I'd be like. How do they make this bottle so perfect and smooth? Like, right. not because there was a purpose, just because it was easy. So, like those boxes, was it just really fucking easy to do that? Or and the pyramid too? Or was it for a specific function? Like, well, how can you make that box functional? Well, it, it, I mean, there is a relation, and I make I have a, a long video on precision, and there is, and I, I said this the other day, I think to you as well that there's 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 a relationship between precision and function, right? You right. Don't, you don't develop precision. Developing precision costs money. Like it, it costs resources. You have to. You only do that for a functional return. And when you look at the development of of precision in the modern world, it kind of stems out of the need for like old naval cannons to to shoot straight. The old days, you would yeah. you would cast a cannon and then fire it while it's hot and go. Well, I guess that's the barrel, and hopefully that thing shoots straight now. And then they were like, well, we can make more accurate weapons if we actually, you know, maybe cast it and then carve out and, and machine it, like slowly use a water wheel and turn out, uh, you know, a, a cannon barrel to make it shoot straighter. And that they started to draw that relationship. Then we needed to make chronographers, accurate timepieces that help with navigation. Like you, longitude, we talked about longitude earlier, but it's very difficult to measure. Latitude's okay. You can use the sun for that. But longitude, you need accurate timepieces to be able to know where you are on that east-west uh, time 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 frame and and in fact the way we used to do it it was it was you know you, you'd go to where you wanted and we'd basically move in right angles like if people would sail to get somewhere based on you know navigational maps it was called like running down a westing or running down an easting you would you would you would get to where you wanted on a latitude and then go that way until you hit what you needed to because you knew you could head east or west but you weren't sure how far right you had gone and it wasn't until the end of the 17th century essentially that we developed accurate enough um, timepieces to be able to navigate using longitude effectively you know then then you know progression or precision progresses into the industrial age and steam engines and the you know the the need to to create um, containment vessels for pressure and you know and that's now in the modern world we've got you know seven seven newton meter processes that we're developing you know silicon on and 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 you've got you're packing millions and millions of transistors and complex logical circuitry into a tiny little footprint but that costs billions of dollars to do and we do it because there's a functional return on it so a long way around of saying that that you develop precision when you're chasing a particular functional return and i think that's what it's one of the indications to me when you look at some of these precision objects particularly the more like the just the the regular ones the boxes are a good example I think they were functional and potentially some of the structures and even the sites were functional. And I think in order to get that functional return, they needed to make these things with precision. Now, in terms of the bottle that we looked at and industrial design, once you have a manufacturing system that supports precision, precision is what you get. Like today, you get buy a toaster, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be industrial designed on a computer and it's going to be made in a manufacturing system that is just by its nature 
very precise. Like it's mm. all, you know, the, there's no panel gaps on it. I mean, cars, look at the the panel gaps between different panels on cars today versus in the 1960s. It's, it's, it's much better. Like it's, you don't need it, but it's, it's a, it's a result of the manufacturing system. So that's also an explanation that I like to use when it comes to the more abstract artifacts, like statues that show right. tremendous precision right. that look like they've been designed. And then they've been executed in a manufacturing system that, that gives you that precision. It gives you that perfect symmetry. You know, it gives you these features that are like kind of hard to explain in isolation. But, you know, I do, I do believe that, that they develop that capability to, to, re, to get some sort of function. What, what that function is, I don't know. Like that's where the speculation comes yes. in. Like why, what was the function that the boxes did? Those, this, this is crazy uh, correlation of, the, you know, these boxes in these pyramids or these boxes in these underground structures. Your Serapium is an example. The pyramids are an example. You know, the, uh, even across the Giza Plateau, the Osiris shaft, you see these boxes underground and in these big structures. I don't know, I, I, but I, I get the sense they're functional. There's, there's infrastructure on these sites. My, at, at Saqqara, at Abu Sir, at Dashur, at Giza, we have evidence for very complex systems of what I can only call channeled blocks, these U-shaped blocks that are below the floor level. So you have these floor tiles that might be a couple feet thick. In some cases, they're even cased on top of that. But right down beneath that stuff, you have this infrastructure of essentially piping it runs all under these sites. It's all over the place at Abu Sir. We see evidence for it, Giza, Saqqara, like all these old kingdom sites. It's not something you ever see on the later sites. These are what the oldest of sites have these very strange and complex, essentially either the, it could have been housing piping, it could have been housing cables, it could have been, we don't know. But it's, and sometimes it's not all gravity fed, like sometimes they'll run all the way down beneath causeways to to where there would have been water and then it runs all over the site in complex patterns. At Abu Sir, it's probably the best example that there's wire joins and all these other things running beneath the floor and sometimes using fairly exotic stone types like granite or, or white calcite or alabaster. And a lot of those stones show evidence for machining. There's a great example at Saqqara of machined alabaster U-shaped channeled blocks that are beneath the floor tiles. And it's it's a real mystery. We don't know why. I mean, it's like if you, if you ask... The, the explanation for how what this white calcite or alabaster was used, it was prized for its white color. It's an expensive stone to try and use. It's difficult to obtain. Alabaster and calcite comes from, you know, extinct and, and calcified natural springs. Like it, it, you have to, you, you know, these are millions of years ago were natural springs. They've calcified over time. And to get white calcite, you actually have to dig all the way to the, to like the source of the natural spring. So it's, Wherever that was, it's not it's not like an easy stone to get to. Uh, you know, further out from the source, you get sort of yellow calcite and brown calcite, but they were using white calcite. And, you know, Egyptologists say that 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 they prize that stuff for its color, for its clean color, or it's, sometimes it can be transparent. In that case, what is this stuff doing buried beneath the floor level where it's never going to be seen? Like it's literally a, a stone type that gets used in this underground infrastructure that's never seen. So they must have been using it for some other purpose. Like, I think some of these stone types that you see, particularly in the, the really megalithic uh, stone um, sites, have might have had a functional purpose. Like choosing particular types of stone, like basalt, granite, limestone, white calcite, even quartzite in some places, and in particular orders. And there's some uh, there's plenty of other indications that there was something else going on at these sites. I mean. Um, 
in my last video I did on Karnak Temple, there's some really interesting, there's an area of Karnak that, that it's normally off limits. Again, we know the right people to get in and see it. And I love showing people this stuff every year is there's a, there's a part of Karnak that where the, the granite's literally crumbling apart. This gra it's granite diorite. It's, <clears throat> it's something's happened to the stone here where, where it's like the, oh, yes. the inside of the stone has swelled or it's, it's like it undergone a transformation and it's expanded. And it's almost around the edge of the stone. There's like this a couple of inches of where, where the stone is, is in good condition, but because the inside's like transformed and expanded, it's, it's put this pressure on the outside and it's, and it's cracked all of the outside. And in some places it's like falling apart. Like it's cracked it whole blocks apart. And then, the inside of the of the blocks just crumbling, crumbling and, from the inside out. Yeah, inside out, and so wild. And then we see that also at Abu Sir and other places where you have you have like crumbling basalt, and and this happens in nature, right? You right. Can, but but it takes literally millions of years of exposure. Basalt and these other igneous stones that are formed in the heat of of like lava and and formed over millions of years of compression and heat in the earth. I mean, you can expose them to millions of years of sunlight and okay they're going to erode and degrade over time but we're talking about cut surfaces of stone that are doing that and it and they were originally finished and so at Abyssir for example you have you have basalt that's been uh that's been cut and then it was cased in limestone so it's like you know it was surrounded by limestone but those mating surfaces are now crumbling and falling apart now who know i mean is it is it is it? A, it's pure speculation, but was it heat cycling? Was it? Was there? Was there something going through it? I mean, I've, I do have a video where we were playing with like a, a very high voltage electromagnetic sort of um, field generator device, and we were testing different types of stone, and they have different electromagnetic properties. Like granite doesn't do anything. You can get arcs coming off limestone, and then somewhat of an arc coming off basalt. So they they do have different properties under different conditions. And, you know, is it possible that those were some of these properties of the stone were things that, that were being chased by the builders for a functional purpose? Right. I love these ideas. And, and I know Chris Dunn is exploring some of those in some of his theories and his work. Uh, he certainly knows a lot more about it than I do. Um, again, I'm just, I'm trying to illustrate that th there may be other, there may be reasons for that type of stone. And some of those properties might have something to do with a possible purpose. So it's like, why would we not? research that further why would we not apply ourselves and and try and see you know is there anything here that that could possibly provide an answer or provide a clue mm. uh for why this was done this way let's look at those scoop marks okay <clears throat> all right so i um you know what let me just give me a second i'll now when it comes to these scoop marks is there any sort of idea or explanation Shit. on how they how they were made either by the uh, the Egyptologists that are there, or by you guys. Uh, I mean, yeah. The, the the explanation for them is, um, you know, is is that they were uh, that's pounding stones. This is this is <laughs> this is the pounding stone explanation. Here's the quarry. I here. love the I love the part of one of your videos where you guys are filming that lady with the pounding stone and she's trying to pound the ground. Yeah, is it? Watch out, you'll break it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me uh, let me pull up this and then we'll go to. Yeah, I also want to talk about Yusuf. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll get into we'll get into that. That, that guy seems super interesting. In For fact, sure. they, they let him like run around there and do do guys do guide people and tour and explain all this stuff that goes counter to the narrative. Yeah, Yusuf's great. I mean, I, I love Yusuf in just the fact that he has um, 
you know, he has, uh, yeah, he's just, he's such a knowledgeable guy. Mm. And, uh, I, dude, he's, he's the greatest. He's my, my brother. He, uh, I, I sort of hit the jackpot when I, when I met him and, and, um, and he's a superstar for, uh, for teaching people. It's what he does. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely what he does. And I will swear to God, I will find uh, these pictures here in a second. You said Yusuf has lived right there his entire life since he was a kid? He has. Yeah, Yusuf, so his dad, um, Yusuf's dad was Hakim El Aowan. Mm-hmm. So a really famous indigenous wisdom keeper and, uh, and guide. He's unfortunately uh, wested since then or he's passed. Uh, he was the guide that was used by guys like Graham Hancock, Robert Boval. John Anthony West, Hakim's well known. There's there's lectures you can find from him online. He's got, I mean, at Yusuf's shop, he's he's sort of got uh, pictures of Hakim from all over the world. He met all sorts of interesting figures. He he's kind of been really well known, um, you know, as a guide and uh, really interesting guy. So Yusuf kind of followed in his father's footsteps. He doesn't believe every he doesn't believe everything that Hakim does. And and there's a if you're interested in Hakim's theories, there's a, an author named Stephen Mailer who wrote a book, uh, Land of Osiris, I think it is, and he was Hakim's student. Uh, and he, I mean, Hakim was the founder of this modern, I guess you'd call it chematology, this theory, chemet being the ancient word for Egypt. Um, and he was, he has a lot of interesting theories, but again, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Yusuf subscribes to all of them. He has his own theories. He's done his own work. Yusuf say. Um, you know, he's a practicing stonemason, so he works with this material. He's a, he's a very talented musician as well, works with this material uh, with his hands. He's very well-versed in in traditional Egyptology, like he knows all of the, the rules. He can read hieroglyphs. Uh, and, yeah, he grew up literally across the street from the Sphinx. In fact, it's still where That's his wild. family store is. <clears throat> it's in um, Naslet el-Samam, which is a little village that's right near the, the entrance, uh, the Sphinx entrance to mm-hmm. the Giza Plateau. And, yeah, he's... The uh, you know the Awen family store is right there, and and his balcony up the top. You're looking straight at the Sphinx and and Whoa, and the middle pyramid dude. complex. It's really cool. What are some of the theories of that guy? That guy came up with Hakim. Yeah, Hakim has here we go. Um, Hakim has uh, has uh, I mean one of the things I can talk about. He would he would he thinks there was acoustical properties to a lot of these sites that there were some of these were sound hospitals. Uh, in <laughs> fact, he even ran one for quite a while. Um, and they had, I mean, look, anecdotally at least, very good results. They would they would take pl- people to these ancient places into some specific areas that have, you know, resonant properties, and they would, I don't know exactly what they were doing in there, but 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 they had people that recovered from illnesses, and I mean, at least anecdotally what? from what I've heard, it worked. And then, uh, as the story goes, as it's been told to me, uh, Zahiwas actually shut them down. He stopped them from doing it. Mm. Um, Who was Zahiwas again? Well, Zahiwas was the long-term, uh, like head of the Supreme Council of Antiquities or the, the the Department of Antiquities and Tourism. I think it's called now. Okay. Uh, he's you know notorious kind of figure. That's that's um, yeah. He had that debate with Graham Hancock where he kind of lost the cool. He, he's he's probably the world's most famous Egyptologist. Certainly Egyptian Egyptologist. World famous guy. Uh, written a bunch of books. Um, you know, I've I talked about him a few times. I've met him a few times. Um, uh, in fact, with the last trip to Egypt, we ran into him like four times. Really? Unreal. Yeah, yeah. Was, he was just there. He was. Yeah. He was at the. He was at. Uh, Is he a nice guy? Uh he's a charming. He can be a charming guy. I, I suspect he probably. Look, I don't know him personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some. He's treated a lot of people very fairly. He's probably been less fair to others. Uh, you know, I, I had no problem with him. I mean, I was just on a tour and he was, this was the Graham Hancock tour where he was supposedly debating him and we spent a day with him. 
Um, and I think he's he's certainly had a history of being quite um, in the past. It's strange, you know. He 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 really attacks a few of the of the the alternative authors. Graham, I mean, in particular, Robert Bovall, he doesn't like. Uh, he he's pretty fond of saying that you know people are just charlatans trying to make money and they're all pyramidiots and stuff like this. But pyramidious. But back in the day, though, he was quite friendly. And in fact, I've seen a picture of like. Zahi and John Anthony West and Robert Boval and Graham Hancock kind of arm in arm hmm. at the Sphinx enclosure, and he certainly uh, has has enabled some interesting research to happen um, privately a few times. I had a video about the the Sphinx Temple that started to get into some of that. With uh, you know, there's a there's a an interesting correlation and in at least these allegations of of uh, of connection between him and the Edgar Casey Foundation. Do you know who Edgar Casey is? The American prophet. Okay, so there's a the it's this is an interesting story. So Casey was a was a was a prophet, and and a lot of people made a lot of money based on his predictions for the stock market back in the day, and uh, and he ended up he 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 had these visions and wrote a couple of books, and and one of his visions entailed the you ever heard of you've probably heard of the Hall of Records, right? Yes. This idea. Okay, so that comes a lot of that comes from Casey. He talks about the fact that there's a hall of records in one of the locations is three of them, I think. And one of them's the location is one of them is under the, the paw of the Sphinx. And then there's another one that's supposedly under, I think it was, um, I mentioned it earlier. It's, um, Mount Nemrut, like the Nemrut tumulus pile, which is an insane site that I, I also saw for the first time, uh, this year. But, you know, so he's, that foundation, there's a the it's the ARE. I think it's the Association for Research and Enlightenment. Is the is essentially the Casey Foundation. Okay. And they've kind of been involved in 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 private expeditions to Giza. They've been looking, right? They're trying to they're trying to they're trying to satisfy Casey's prediction about the 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 Hall of Records. And they have been essentially digging and looking around at Giza and these other places since like the 1970s. Now. <laughs> Zahi's very much against the uh, anything Atlantis related. He's he's like there's no ancient civilization. So on, in publicly facing, right? He's he decries any of that type of thing. But he did also grant like the Casey Foundation like a five year permit to do unlimited essentially digging and excavation on the Giza Plateau, including in the Great Pyramid. And so it's on one hand you, you're sort of decrying all of this this. Um, you know anything lost civilization? And then on the other hand, you're enabling essentially an organization whose stated goal is to is to prove out Atlantis and that there was a hall of records and everything like that. Not only that, but Edgar Casey's son, Hugh Lynn Casey, who wrote it, he wrote a book, and in that book he claims, and I will say that Zahiwas has denied this. He claims that that the Edgar Casey Foundation funded his. Education, like they paid for his education at Pennsylvania University. They found, like he, he literally says in the book, and this isn't me saying it. He found that he, they found Zahi, who was a site inspector at the time, like not you know like lower ranked kind of guy, and but he was pliable and agreeable, and they thought he was someone they could work with. So they funded his education along with Mark Lehner, uh, who's been a long term partner of Zahi Huas, and and that went through the Pen Pennsylvania University. They got him his doctorate. And for sure, it's verified. Like Zahi has had any engagements with the ARE plenty of times. He's gone and spoken at their events. You know, he's been part of it. He goes back there and lectures quite often. So, you know, it's just strange to me that he's associated with an organization like the ARE, which has has done these secretive digs. And 
And there's strong evidence, as documented by Robert Boval, which might be one of the reasons that Zahi doesn't like him so much. He's documented the fact that Zahi's been enabling kind of secret expeditions, dig, digging and drilling around the Sphinx since the 1970s. Like there's there's kind of one acknowledged drilling uh, effort that they made to to look under the Sphinx. I think it happened in the mid 90s thereabouts, and they were they were drilling under the body of the Sphinx. And they were, the, the stated goal was, oh, we're checking the integrity of the limestone bedrock given the water tables rising, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But there's plenty of evidence for, for a bunch of other drilling that's happened, like as far back as the late 1970s. And there's pictures of, you know, Hugh Lynn Casey and Mark Lehner and Zahi Huas from those times, like a young Zahi. They're all together. And then in the, in the, in the mid to late 90s, he enabled uh, something called the Shore Expedition, which was Dr. Joseph Shore... A couple other people, Boris Saeed was one of them, but they're all ARE members. They're all part of the Casey Foundation and none of them are Egyptologists or archaeologists, but he gave them a five-year permit, open permit to do whatever they wanted up at the uh, up at the, the Giza Plateau. And they did a bunch of stuff. They did a bunch of excavations around the Sphinx and Zahi was involved in it and they even made a documentary that's never been seen. <laughs> so Boris Saeed, who was a filmmaker, he's also since died... Um, and I, I dug into like these old Art Bell radio episodes from the '90s where he was talking about it. They had a, he had a falling out with um, I think Joseph Shaw, the guy that that, that was funding the experiment or the, the the expedition. And just based on this fallout, the the, the documentary kind of went into limbo and it's never been seen. But apparently, it's part of it. And they they had gone in under the Sphinx and looked at chambers. And and Zahi at the time. And Boris said they found chambers beneath the Sphinx. Like they 100% found chambers beneath the Sphinx. By the way, also a claim made by John Anthony West and, and Dr. Robert Schock when they, they uh, analyzed the area with ground penetrating radar, they found chambers beneath the Sphinx. And at the time when they were doing this experiment, Zahi said, oh, we, we've got this incredible announcement and discovery. It's going to shake up the world's history. It's going to, we're going to change what we know about the, the sort of the structure of the Giza Plateau and what's down below the ground. He was teasing it. And then this documentary kind of went away and he's never said anything about it since. And in fact, to this day, denies that there's any chambers or any structures or, or, or things beneath the, beneath the Sphinx. He, they, he, now, if, if asked, he'll say, well, he, yeah, the, the, they found fish, natural fishes in the rock and there's nothing else, which is nonsense. I mean, Boris Saeed's on record of saying, no, I've seen them. Like he, he's been down there and seen them. And, been in them? Well, it's kind of what he says, yeah. And then... But it's very secret. It's all private, privately organized and, and permitted by by Zahiwas. And so it's, it's, there's an interesting history. I think, look, I, th I think if there are chambers down there and if there's anything in them or there was, it's long gone. Like, I just I think it's been pilfered or it's been, it's been taken or it's, mm -hmm. been, it's not public. Um, I mean, there's, this, there's also a chance that if there was ever anything in there, the Egyptians or the dynastic Egyptians might have taken it. There's a couple of people with theories along those lines, like Manu Seyfazada, wrote a book I think called Beneath the Sphinx that that talks about the idea that that the Hall of Records may well have been there but it was discovered by the old kingdom Egyptians who took it and then there's some evidence that they were replicating some of that inf information and knowledge through a particular cult that persisted through dynastic Egypt and and he it's an interesting story that he puts together it is new data but it seems likely that they're indicating some really interesting information like the spacing of planets, the relative distance of planets in the solar system, like all this cosmic information that it seems like they didn't really know what to do with, but it was information that they'd gotten from, you know, this trove of data from a lost ancient civilization. 
And it's just they, just them were replicating it and kind of recording it down in their own way. And there's all these interpretations of the, of this stuff that seems to match all of what we know about the solar system and the structure of. So it's it kind of goes. There's all these different directions that stuff goes in. And I'd love. I, I've been meaning to do a, a more dedicated sort of deep dive into that shore expedition and the history of secret digs around the Sphinx, because you know the Sphinx and the Sphinx Temple. It it is. Uh, it is like it's described as a gateway. Like there is a lot of legitimate reasons to think that there's something below that structure in that part of the Giza Plateau. Uh-huh. Like even the way it's historically depicted and talked about from ancient Egypt. Like they they often when they draw out the Sphinx, I mean they show it on a pedestal. Like it, the Sphinx is always depicted in these steles most of the time on top of a pedestal. And in many of those pedestals, there's a doorway. And then the Sphinx is often described as a doorway or as a guardian, uh, a guarding a doorway and into the underworld or something like this. And and when you look at the Sphinx, there's it doesn't it's obviously sitting on the bedrock, right? But you have to imagine there's there's a structure in front of it that's next to the, the Valley Temples on like the left looking at the Sphinx. Then there's the Sphinx Temple in front of the Sphinx and the Sphinx is behind it. Now, the Sphinx Temple has been shut for public access for I don't know how long. Like Yusuf, I mean, he's in his 40s. He's never been in there until we got to go in there on one trip. We were probably one of the first groups to ever, and, and thanks again to the people I know in Egypt who arranged this through the Ministry of Antiquities to finally open up access to the Sphinx Temple as a special permission. And we went in there. Very interesting structure. Amazing. There's amazing granite cornice blocks and all this stuff. But... It, if you would imagine it back in the day with its cornice blocks, which are these curved blocks that would have been around the edge of it, and you'd looked at it from from down in the valley towards the Sphinx, it would have looked as if the Sphinx was sitting on top of the temple, which makes the Sphinx temple potentially the location for the pedestal of the Sphinx, which has the doorway to the underworld. Now, in the Sphinx temple, when you go in there, there is indeed evidence for shafts that go down. There's, there's these, again, these giant... There's like an 80-ton channeled granite block in the ground beneath the floor tiles that have since been removed that terminates at a shaft that goes down to we don't know where that hasn't been cleared, and it, but it, it obviously goes underground. And I mean, not only that, but at the front of the Sphinx Temple, if you walk back, if you if you're standing there at Giza and you're looking at it, it's where the like where the the seats are for the Sound and Light Show. Sort of off in the corner, about thirty or forty feet in front of the Sphinx Temple, there's a little concrete pad, and there's a there's a there's a metal tube sticking out of it like this, just off the ground, just sort of unobtrusively in the corner. That's where Zahi Huas himself did a drilling experiment. So they drilled down like 150 feet. And this is a limestone plateau, and at like 150 feet or 130 something like that, they hit granite. This drill hit granite and returned these shards and flakes of red granite. From 130 feet below the ground, what the fuck? and there's not natural yeah. granite there. So what he they what the hell is down there, that deep, and it's made of granite, right? Whoa! I mean, half yeah, it, it goes on and on. Like you, you go halfway up the up the plat up the uh, the causeway, like connects the Sphinx and the the Valley Temple to the Middle Pyramid Complex, right? It's this big causeway. It goes up to the pyramid. Halfway up it is what's known as the Osiris Shaft. Mm-hmm. And this is three different levels that you can go into. Again, as a special permission, there's water at the bottom, but there's three chambers that go down to about 150 feet, and there's big granite boxes in them <laughs> as you go down there, 
Like, and there's tunnels that literally lead off down the causeway that have never been explored at the bottom level. They're caved in and stuff, but they've never been explored. There's, there's footage of when they did pump the water out back in the day when they're exploring it. And there's, it was like a Fox, I think it was on the, the Fox channel. And Zahi was down there with a reporter and, and, and saying, oh, this was the tomb of Osiris or whatever. And, and she's like, well, what about these tunnels? He's like, no, we've never explored them. We sent a boy in and he couldn't get very far, but we've never looked at as to where they go. So like, we, there's definitely underground chambers and infrastructure down there. And we honestly don't know if they've been explored and if, you know, there's anything in there or, or if, you know, what's happened, which is. And what do you think his motivation would be to change his story on that? and keep all this secret excavation secret and all this secret exploration and not to change the narrative. Like what, what sort of motivations would he have? I don't know. I mean, I mean, if you know the, I think it's the typical, if there's any motivation, it's pure speculation. I'm not claiming this or that I know it. And I will, I'll just probably reiterate that Zahi's denied that he has any connection to the Aeri. Uh, for sure he was involved in these expeditions. I mean, there's plenty of people who talk about him doing ex being involved in these expeditions. Mm -hmm. And again, all of this happened like, you know, 30 years ago now. But um, yeah, I mean, what, what motivates people, right? It's money and it's power and it's all these sort of things. I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know. And and it's, it's I don't like any real conspiratorial angle on, on these things in terms of, you know, they find stuff and is, is it hidden from us because it doesn't conform to the story? I don't know. Mm. I'd like to think not. I'd, I'd like to think that if they found stuff, they'd they'd talk about it regardless of if it had a significant impact on the story of history. But well, doesn't he make money quite literally from people visiting Egypt and exploring Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's like from tourism. made plenty of money. I, I mean, I don't know how directly he's, he's a very powerful figure in Egypt. I, I'd say this, he's, he's also done a lot for Egyptology. I mean, mm. he champions the returning of objects to Egypt, which I think is a, a great cause, uh, particularly if they, I mean, if they're in private hands, and people can't see them, the stuff that gets... I mean, Egypt's been pilfered by everybody for so long. Um, yeah, you were saying much of this stuff's been found in uh, Israel, right? Oh, it's all over the place. Yeah, all over the place. There's... there's, Yeah, I mean, there's, there is there is stuff that... Can't, I mean, you don't have to go back to just Israel, but you go back to the, the, the Americans, the French, the English. I mean, during all the periods of occupation, the last several hundred years, anyone who's been involved in the governance of Egypt... I mean, you know, I think Matt Simpson just did a video or some... No, Luke Cavins actually did a video uh, talking about how the British Museum is essentially full of artifacts that were stolen from Egypt. I mean, one of the sticking points is that the original Rosetta Stone is in the British Museum. It's been there for like 200 years. But it's, you know, I, I look, I'm, I'm like, if it's in a museum somewhere and people can see it, they, ha they have... People don't understand the scope of artifacts that have been found here too. There's There are warehouses absolutely full of this stuff in <sighs> Egypt, like... Some of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings are like they fill them up with all the artifacts they find in other other places and lock the doors because it's essentially climate controlled. Mm. And I hope, and I've yet to see it, but they're building a giant new museum, or it should be just about done by now. The the Grand Egyptian Museum, biggest museum in the world, from what I understand, is going to be. And I really hope that they have enough space and real estate to to show us all of the artifacts that have they just haven't had the space to show. I mean, there's so much stuff in Egypt and, and that's been taken from Egypt. Um, and even then, even despite all of this, even the Egyptologists and Zahi will say this as well, is that the, is that it's like 70% of it is still underneath the sands. Mm -hmm. Like he thinks that we've, we've, we're only, we've only maybe uncovered 20 to 30% of, of what's out there. So... <laughs> 
there was you know there's a lot going on and um but yeah look i don't i don't know it's an interesting sort of story to to dive into with the history of some of these excavations and i and like i said i this is it kind of goes back to my point about the pyramid earlier where i hope that whatever they do to and i'm sure somebody's planning it that they're gonna go and try and look for this chamber i'd love i, I would very much hope that it gets shared with the world that's all i'm that's all I mm-hmm. want. It's like share that information, let everybody see it. I mean, it's part of everybody's history. Um, you know, I don't care who makes money on it or doesn't, but it's just yeah. like I think a lot of people would be interested. Um, what is this right here? So this is the obelisk. Okay. This is the unfinished obelisk. And you talk about scoop marks. There's there's a few of them on top of it. Oh, wow. And in fact, you see some of the, uh, <laughs> the characteristic uh, pounding stones there as well. And in fact... Yeah, that's probably a better look. And and there's some of these scoop marks are you see on the right here on the left of the of the of the thing as well. And then all the way down uh the the uh the uh what do you call it? The the uh what is this man? Why am I why is my brain not working? Here. <laughs> need some <laughs> the trench. There you go. Okay. I just needed to look at the smelling stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, so this one is still, this one was never actually pulled out of the quarry, right? This right. was started and never completed. That's right. Yeah, it was, it's not actually, they, uh, in fact, it's not, the trench isn't quite deep enough. You actually, look at some scoop marks, see them on the right here as well, on the wall. So what's interesting about the scoop marks, and I don't know if I have uh, other examples in this particular. Is there any explanation, like, mo- like, of how this could happen naturally, those scoop marks, like from degradation. It's not natural. It's definitely not natural. Uh, it's it's not degradation. So, so the, the the explanation for this is, is is that this was the quarrying technique. You see this, you see this on the quarries. You see it around the artifacts where they've been quarrying things, and uh, it's not a it's not a natural phenomena. A hundred percent. It's it's they say it's been made by these uh, dolerite pounding stones, which honestly is is a it's one of the silliest theories that's out there so they found at the site though they found a lot of these dollar dollarites are harder stone than granite mm-hmm. uh you know you will eventually grind away and and remove some granite if you pound away hard enough and again studies have been done on on kind of the the removal rate of stone using uh dollarite pounders but and i i cover it in my video one of my videos about the quarry there's there's a lot that's uh that doesn't make sense when it comes to this um particular quarry and in fact fact if i take a look at where's the isis quarry stumps so i I have videos here i'm sure i've got some okay so that you can see a number of different um quarrying techniques in play at the at the aswan quarry the oldest being uh, how how far is that obelisk from uh the giza plateau about 500 miles okay so that's that's generally the um so this is like the, the general characteristical layout of it. And you see these scoop marks all over the place, right? They're all on the floor where they've been used to, to, to move stuff. You see those other forms of quarrying too. In higher layers, you'll see chiseling and you'll see wedge and chisel. But you also have uh, these test pits. Now, I probably have – this is probably not the best example. but Holy So shit. these test pits that go down, some of them 30, 40 feet, they're like cut straight down into the stone. They're like – they're like a, uh, I don't know if I have an, a better example here. I, most of my stuff on this is video, but, um, oh, here's one. So here you go. So see, this is like a, they have to put a grate over the top of this. And this is done using those scoop marks as well, which is, which sort of starts to belie the challenge. Like how do you get in there and pound, you know, crouch down and it's barely wide enough or broad enough for a person to, to stand in there, let alone 
get down on the, on their, you know, crouch down and pound it on the floor and then remove the material out. These go straight down. And what they're probably for is they're probably for testing the quality of the granite, right? When, you, when you're looking for a giant single piece of granite, it's not, you're not going to find that at the surface of any granite outcrop because the granite's in, like it's inferior up there. It's going to have cracks. It's going to have defects. Mm-hmm. When you cut down into the core of these quarries, this is where the, the highest quality stone is. It's got the large quartz crystal inclusions, and that's where you can find stone of a quality good enough to, to cut like a, a single-piece block that isn't going to break on you. Right. right. <clears throat> so these test pits would have been dug looking for like how deep do we have to go to get these blocks out. Um which is Jesus opens Christ. up opens up a whole bunch of other problems because they a lot of Egyptologists don't credit the old kingdom Egyptians with the ability to quarry granite. It's sort of ridiculous. Um, yeah, and and you see tons of let me. This is more of the test pit here. These are really cool, but you can see how it was done. Um, good God, dude! Yeah, it's the the quarry is really really interesting. Here's some good scoop marks. Actually, this is. Uh, you start to see stuff. So in some areas, there's really interesting uh, particular block. I probably have it here. Do I? Okay, this is this is probably the best um, indication of it. So it's tough to see. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah. But, so there's an unfinished piece that's not the not the big one, but there's one on the side. And so what? And it's just, it's sort of cut out, and it goes in underneath. It goes in underneath the. Uh... What's your wildest guess <laughs> on when this was all done? Oh, so I think some of this stuff has done wildest guess is, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I would open up the range from 50,000. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily just before the Younger Dryas Cataclysm, put it that way. Like that's a, it's a possibility that the civilization that might've done some of this might've been ended by the Younger Dryas. But I actually think given the extension of the human timeline, given the possibility that it may not have been just us, it might've been other species of hominids potentially involved. I don't know. I, I open up that window to like potentially hundreds of thousands of years. What do you mean other species of hominids? Well, Denisovan, Denisovans, Neanderthals, we have a complex genetic history. So us ourselves, our species is now out potentially 800, 900,000 years old. That's based on teeth morphology, mm-hmm. studies into teeth morphology, right. uh, studies into like when we split from a common ancestor with the Neanderthals, like our DNA train. Uh, from a fossil record, where we, we, the oldest human remains are like three hundred thousand years old, but but a couple of recent studies looking at the rates of dental evolution and our DNA put the window much further, like towards a million years, but you know eight nine hundred thousand years. Mm-hmm. We're also finding that our, our 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 history is more complex. We have you know the the discovery of the Denisovans or the Denisovans is a fairly recent thing. That like gets a whole other species of hominid. Um, and there's some evidence of tool use and even sophisticated tool use. There's a jade bracelet that is a Denisovan artifact that has drill holes in it. Uh, and the one other thing that I've learned recently that I always I always thought that um, like Neanderthals couldn't talk. Like that was, I just thought, ah, oh, you know, our studies and what we found of Neanderthals, the, the, the larynx and the structure of their throat meant that they couldn't talk. I think that's recently been reversed. I think now there's evidence that they could in, in fact talk. And... We don't know anything about the Denisovans. We, we literally have a couple bones that we're working from, like a pinky bone and a couple other pieces, I think. So we don't know if they could talk. And, and you kind of need speech to organize and for civilization. Yeah. At least we do it verbally. I mean, Graham Hancock might argue that maybe some of their methods of communications might have been some other mechanism. 
So it just again in in speculation, I I don't rule out when you consider the concept of a lost ancient civilization. I don't, I'm not saying aliens, but I think it could certainly have involved other types of humans. We've got all the elongated skulls as well in, in South America. That's a real interesting phenomena. Um, you know, Graham would I've heard him talk about the fact that some that some of those people that they may have had other faculties that that created or or, or achieved some of the stonework. I prefer. What does he say about that? Well, he he, I mean, he gets attacked for this endlessly, but he. You know, he he says that it's possible that they achieve some of the things they did through other mental f- faculties, not just telepathy, but telekinesis and stuff like that. I mean, there's stories that just seem to ro- go along those lines. I, I prefer to take the technological angle, just given that we have the evidence for some of the tools and powerful tools being used and achievements being made, like these thousand plus ton statues. I mean, God, I think I was telling you at at dinner last night that you know, in there's a quarry in Egypt that had they disconnected that one limestone block it would have been 5000 tons you right. know there's you know there, there's stuff up to that scale that seems like they were working on it and and uh it's crazy that at the minya quarry but so i i don't rule out the possibility for a lost ancient civilization that it could have involved other species of human of mm. hominids like we we're, we're one we're the last humans left right there were other humans. We're the we killed off the rest of them. We're the last humans left. Are you aware of the evidence? I'm real. I'm really fuzzy on this, but there's some sort of evidence that was found that basically says that our DNA or our the telomere on our DNA, the telomeres have been like capped or something happened where there's evidence that like a a pre civilization could have possibly had a lifespan that was like ten times our lifespan or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some really interesting. Uh, there's like a very stark um, difference between our DNA and the DNA that was found in what was it compared to the DNA and what I don't forget what it was. Probably in chimps and in chimps, yeah, and yeah, other other uh, yeah, our closest relatives. Well, so there's I'm I'm not I'm not a hundred percent familiar with the telomere thing. I've heard that, mm-hmm. but I've always been fascinated by the work of guys like Lloyd Pye. Lloyd Pye, that's the guy. That's how I heard about this. Yeah, so Lloyd Pye is interesting. He he he. Uh, it's a great lecture online called "Everything You Think You Know Is Wrong." Uh, he was he was the he was probably more more well known for being the keeper of the Star Child skull, which is this interesting artifact. But he was genuinely interested also the Star Child skull. Oh, that's a whole other rabbit hole. Bro. Okay, it's, all right. Keep let's keep going. Let's not get you off track. Interested. It's interesting, but he was interested in in human origins and human evolution as well. And he wrote a book called "Everything You Think You Know Is Wrong," and. Uh, I will say that 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 he does he does do the whole um Anunnaki thing. Like he he yeah. does go down the route of uh what's his name um who wrote 10th planet Sitchin. Zachariah Sitchin. So this is he he sort of follows that but I mean I and I'm not I'm not I don't think Sitchin is correct and I'm not really a believer in the Anunnaki stuff but Oh really? No, I I think there's I think Sitchin was kind of pretty comprehensively kind of debunked with um his how he translated his deliberate mistranslations and it, it's a long story with Sitchin, but uh, not to say that you can rule like that possibility isn't ruled out. I, I where what, the work that Lloyd Pye did made it, it interesting from a perspective of a potential intervention theory, which is means that he was sort of point hinting at the fact that we might have been genetically engineered as a species, and there's some evidence that at least from a gen- he was in, he was looking at the evidence to support that. I think we we have 
I am gonna get this wrong. <laughs> we have we have a different number of chromosomes, right? Than other species, than our closest relatives, right? And when you look at the at the DNA structures, it almost looks like we've been engineered, like we, that we, they've been tied together and kind of engineered that way. We, there's a few genetic oddities about our species that Lloyd Pye was suggesting might be indications that we've been engineered. So. It gets into that in detail. I'm not an expert. It's been a long time since I've read the book. Um, and this flies in the face of evolution. like It does in a lot of ways. But there are sort of other examples. I don't know if it's horses or something like that that have have a similar like chromosomal difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he he. It's not the only thing he points at. Like we're it's we're a weird kind of species with some of the diseases that we have. I mean, he 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 talks about the fact that we're like one of the only species that dies of exposure like you can't we're not it's like we're not well engineered for the planet you right know? right you ever seen a dog just looks at the sun like it's eyeballs they're just looking at the sun like <laughs> don't look at the nuclear explosion you'll go blind no they're fine <laughs> we go blind if we look at the sun we don't have very good night vision we, we we die from exposure if we're left out you know in the without clothing and shelter and all those sort of things yeah we, we have a bunch of really weird genetic diseases that other species don't seem to suffer from i mean there's even some deficiencies in our genome that we're so far away from every other wild animal it's insane it is well and that and that's that's always been true i mean the whole missing the missing gap idea is you'd actually need like a dozen missing links or the missing link you know the idea that oh there's a missing there's a missing link in the chain of evolution to get to humans and like you'd need more than one Mm. like it's to go from our nearest ancestors and neanderthals to us is, is a huge jump i mean and it's actually he points out that in a lot of cases it gets that gets obfuscated by the way they lay out skeletons, like 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 by by making skeletons of Neanderthals look more humanoid in terms of like you know they they space out the neck and they don't show it like it was where they had no neck and their shoulders were kind of much closer to their head. There was this huge genetic and evolution gaps between us and our nearest relatives. Not you know in 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 a number of different areas. So he. he he gets into that and it's it's an interesting idea like i don't but i don't know i'm not i don't i don't know how to explain it one way or the other i do i do rate the whole intervention theory as a possibility so either mm. either the og intervention theory which is life itself panspermia like dna itself coming to this uh world by intervention or by just panspermia as an accident like Comets could well be the progenitors of life in the universe. Like the fact we're learning more and more about the fact that there's, you know, that the amino acids and the building blocks of life could be contained in cometary material in those icy cores, or even with the, if they're radioactive, they could be liquid cores. Liquid water could be carried by these things, mm-hmm. which could contain the building blocks of life. And it's really interesting to think that, you know, this is the mystery that's at the origin of life altogether. And, you know, we're definitely creatures of this planet too, I'd say that. Like we, we you trace our DNA, we, we're part of the tree of life of this planet. But it's the one, as far as evolution's gone from single cell organisms through the through the dinosaurs to, to us, the one part of that that's never kind of changed, that's never evolved is, is DNA itself. So the way that life gets expressed as a technology, the DNA, that's never really changed. Like DNA as a technology has has not changed. It's just it's changed its expression. Like it's the forms and the the life that it creates has changed. And there's a real mystery at the at the point of origin of life, like how DNA came to be. 
You know, this is a this is a, an ongoing field of research. There are people trying to figure this out. Can you, you know, I mean, I I personally think it's quite unlikely that it was a bunch of you know proteins and amino acids in some warm water that got hit by lightning and boom, there's DNA. It's it's a very complex structure. Yes. And and even by saying that, oh, okay, so life might have been seeded on this planet, either like Prometheus style, where mm-hmm. the, the aliens came and said sprinkled some DNA in the river and away we go, or or it just arrived on a planet from somewhere else. All you're really doing is kicking the can down the road. Like it still had to start somewhere. Um, but it's a possibility. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if panspermia was the origin of life on this planet. Could have been another civilization. I don't know. And I think there's some interesting lines of evidence and, and interesting thinking from people about the idea that it could have been a more direct intervention into evolution uh, later on in time. I'm not saying I believe that. I just think it's interesting. And it's it's tough to rule out some of those possibilities based on the evidence. Especially when you look at some of the stuff that we're looking at here and the stuff that you've discovered. Oh. I mean, I, mean, I yeah. think with beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have proved that, pe- you and people like you have proved that we're not ba- we're not coming from a, off of a linear timeline. No. Of, I would agree. At least technologically. Yeah, I would agree. So... Let's see if I can show this to you. It's hard to see. I wish I had these photos. I, I maybe I can pull up a video or something. But which one? So is this? Are you looking at? Have you looked at that, that, that new five million or five thousand ton obelisk? Is that no, okay, no? Okay. If you want to see that, I do have a picture of that. I, I I would just say that with, I would finish off the quarry discussion by saying that with the scoop marks. The one other thing I'd just like to point out to people is, mm-hmm. is that, you know, these are these are regular lines. You actually see it here. I think it's not a bad example. They start, like these scoop marks start and they're consistent and linear and they go all the way down and they actually go up and underneath this stone. So this stone's being quarried out, the one in like mm-hmm. in the foreground here. And they go all the way up, up and under. So it's like this one continuous tool mark. I have a, I have a long video on the scoop marks that gets into the details mm. of why this isn't, the, the pounding stone hypothesis isn't a plausible example. And, it, and I think it's telling also that that if you look at the quarrying methods that they will show you in the quarry, okay, there's pounding stones, which is literally uh, uh, with a pound with a stone or rubbing on it with a stone, and then you go up in sophistication to well, like the wedge and chisel approach that I talked about, where you hammering wood into like you make these grooves and you hammer wood in, and then the other example is well, you actually have straight chiseling where it's later in time and you've got hardened steel, you've got long steel chisels and you're banging it in and you're just like carving the rock and then splitting it. Yeah. So you can think of that as a sophistication goes up. But but what they're extracting and the, the stones that they're taking out is is the absolute opposite. They're using those other methods to take smaller pieces and little pieces off the sides of things. But that pounding stone method, the most primitive one, is also the one supposedly responsible for the biggest goddamn pieces you can find. Like it's it doesn't make any sense that the most primitive technology is is the one supposedly responsible for the thousand ton. Artifacts, and there's good, ex- and then there's there's a good example of how just how old that is. Uh, if I go back up to my podcast images, we go back to the quarry. Is in this area here, right? So this this is what's known as the harbour in the quarry. You can't normally get in here. I don't know. One time we wandered down here, and we we're, were in here, and so supposedly this is where they would park the boats, and they call this the harbour. And it's it's not a harbour to me. I'm what you're looking at is the rem- remnants of a trench for a giant object right so look at this thing so this is a piece of stone that was probably extracted from here you see the scoop marks along the side it's i think it i think it's as big if not bigger than the than the the unfinished obelisk and it's it's in this lower area i'm standing there and 
it's it's in, it's called the harbour now. But I think you're looking at what is left after they've taken something out using this this scooping technique. What's interesting about it is that it's got painting on it. It's got all these paint, these paint, these these these, these, these uh, depictions of ostriches, uh, or some people say they're flamingos, and mm. there's all this painting on it. And what gets even more interesting about that stuff is when you compare, you look at this style of this artwork that's in this on this area. You see, it keeps going down here, and all of these walls are gone. The, the closer wall to us has been quarried out entirely, but this was a big trench, and this huge piece of stone was removed. That type of artwork, and I've got many more examples than just this, it matches this stuff. Now, this stuff is a style of painting and artwork that is very much associated with pre-dynastic times, right? So the, like before the dynastic civilization ever started, the artwork that's on the wall in that quarry matches the pottery and, and diagrams and drawings that we see on pottery vessels that come from pre-dynastic times that have been found in pre-dynastic burials. So what this infers to me is that that artwork done in that quarry was probably done in pre-dynastic times. It was done using the same art style. They used a much different art style. There's, others, there's other carvings in the quarry where the Egyptians did their thing, you know, the more dynastic, typical kind of hieroglyphic and, and artwork. This red ochre paint with the, with, the, with the style of carving, these birds on this thing match the birds in that. There's, there's a bunch of other examples of it. It means that it was done in pre. I think it was done in pre-dynastic times, which also tells you that it was done on the wall that was left after they'd pulled that block out. So you had to have pulled that block out first to even yes. expose that wall, right? And then it gets painted on. So how how long ago did they pull that that block out of there? And yeah, it's crazy. Good God! So I wanted to finish. I just wanted to make that point about the quarry. Yeah. Um. And I have. I do have a video that, that dives into that. Um that giant block that's been extracted there and the connection to that artwork. Let's talk about the vases. <laughs> There's a lot of new shit going on with the vases that you've been uh, looking at. There is. What um, We talked a lot about the vases on the first podcast we did and the incredible symmetry involved mm -hmm. in making those vases and the yep. fact that they're extremely thin. You can shine a light in them and you can see through them. They're so goddamn thin. And yep. they're made out of the, some of the hardest rocks that's right. on earth. Um, and they still say that these vases were made during those times with chisels and pounding stones and right. all that stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, even, even after you've come out with some, some of your videos and some of this stuff, no one's no one's acknowledged it officially. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, nobody's looked at 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 nobody's really said that. Uh, you know, that there's. That, I mean, the hypothesis for how they were made, at least in the mainstream, has remained the same, which is, you know, it was people rubbing on them with rocks and mm -hmm. banging on them with flint. Stuff mm -hmm. like that. So made by hand. And again, to speed run the vases, it's like they exist in, they go back to well and truly pre-dynastic times. In some cases, there's evidence of them going back to burials as far as 14,500 years ago, right through pre-dynastic times. They, and then then they've been found in times, you know, basically during the, the old kingdom up to about the fourth and fifth dynasty, most of them. Um, the majority of them were found beneath the step pyramid, like 40, 50,000 of them, uh, which is a third dynasty structure. Then they kind of peter out after that. Like there's a few examples of vases that come from later periods, but we identify them as coming from those periods because they have very poorly scratched hieroglyphs on them. So, right, I mean, right. we talked about that earlier. Mm -hmm. But these are incredible class and, uh, you know, category of artifacts, like made from all sorts of exotic types of stone. Like I said, we talked about them before. Mm -hmm. Perfect symmetry, extremely thin. Petrie found one that went down to 140th of an inch, which is I think the quote that I've got here from him. Uh, 
One of the other things I always like to point out is that they're often found. We talked about imitation earlier. Painting them. They're, this is a this is where you would find them, and they're they're ascribed to the same person because they're found in the same burial. But you have a hard stone vase here next to a hand formed pottery vase that is painted to look like granite, and not even a, it's this is not a turned vase. This yeah. is hand formed. Right. So you know a lot of people. Even when you get into the details of arguing about this, the people are like, okay, they made them on a lathe, but it was just a simple lathe because, you, you know, the idea that you've t- you're turning the stone to get these results. Right. I'm like, okay, so if they had lathes, why didn't they have the pottery wheel? The pottery wheel was a much simpler application of the wheel than a lathe is. Um, but it's, it's just a facetious sort of argument to suggest that these came from the same people. I think they're inherited and they're older. But what's happened, and there's lots of evidence, they go way back into time, Lots of them discovered. They were inscribed. They were definitely reused and inherited. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a depiction of, of of how they were made that was found at Saqqara. This is what they used to ex- to basically say, this is how they were made. It's basically like bent sticks with weights on the side and flint tips. <laughs> this guy's and, got his hand in the middle of it. Yeah, like he's rubbing out. at it with a hand. But but what they're showing you here is the is the is the vase making industry that happened after. The third dynasty. Right. It's the it's the alabaster vases. It's just right. white calcite. It's a three on the most scale. It's much softer, and we have lots and lots of examples of beautiful alabaster vase work. But it's very simple. It's mm-hmm. it's not simple. It's awful. It's not precise. You don't see the same symmetry. They're off balance. They don't you know they they don't have the same properties as the very hard stone vases that seem to come from earlier times. So what's happened though since I talked to you last was that we finally been able to take this analysis to a new level. Like we've finally been able to get our hands on what is a privately owned pre-dynastic rose granite vase and subject it to structured light scanning. This was the first step we've taken. This happened at the start of this year uh, of 23. And we've since <laughs> we've come a long way since then. Um, and structured light scanning is a process where you're basically 3D scanning it with lasers and you can get, you can basically create a model of the artifact down to about uh, the accuracy of about a thousandth of an inch. So take an inch, divide it up into a thousand pieces. Mm-hmm. A human hair is between two and three thousandths of an inch thick. A sheet of printer paper, maybe five or six, something like that, thousandths thick. So you, where accuracy is down to less than half the width of a human hair. So it creates an extremely accurate model of the vase. Now, once you've got that model, you can start to do some interesting analysis on it. You can start to look at, okay, how precisely was this thing made? And that's exactly what we did. So this is the vase. It's actually only about yay tall. It's like six inches tall, maybe a little tiny thing. And that's the, that's it being scanned. And once we did that, there were, uh, there were a couple of um, professional metrologists and these guys work in the aerospace industry. They make parts for, for jet engines and turbines and, you know, uh, the space rocket ship stuff, you know. Mm. These are professional engineers. that They're, they're professional metrologists, and metrology being the study of, of or the science of measurement. So in those fields, you know, you have to you, – you, you use these techniques a lot in those fields, and it's very important, right? We want to make things precisely. And this is a good example of precision-enabling function. It's like turbine blade manufacture and stuff like that, like right. efficiency of, of jet engines, all that sort of stuff. These guys work – for one of those companies, and this is what they do on a day-to-day basis. So they analyzed the scan, and they ran it through a coordinate measurement system, and what they found was just astonishing. Like the results and, and looking at just how precisely this thing was made, absolutely astonishing. And in particular, it's not just the precise nature of the surfaces themselves, 
but it's the interrelation of one surface to another. So, you know, making the different parts of the vase be perpendicular or parallel or perfectly aligned with other parts of it. So the way this works, um, it's fairly complex, but you can, you can, we can sort of step through it. The, the first thing to note is the vase itself is, is an ellipsoid. You can't match it to a regular geometric shape, right? It's not a circle. It's not a sphere. It's not a cone. It's an ellipsoid. And what you want to be able to do is, is match geometric shapes or regular shapes to parts of the vase so that then you can do geometry on them. You can calculate right. center lines and center points and the you know what how perpendicular or parallel are they to other parts of the vase? So things like this. So, right. you, so we essentially start by creating you know an X Y Z three three dimensional grid, which helps us derive things like you know center lines, axes, uh, and then we can start to compare the other parts of the vase. So the way you do this in a CMM system is you match geometric shapes to parts of the vase. Now. You could do that with five. You could say like, all right, we're going to match a flat plane to the top of the vase, the lid, and we're going to use five points to do it. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be very accurate. It's not going to represent that surface very well. But if you do it with thousands and thousands of points, the more points you use of reference, the more accurately it's it's right. representing that surface. So you'll see in these in these slides the fact that we're using thousands and thousands of points. So in this example, uh, there's nearly four thousand points of reference has been used to match a flat plane. To the top of the uh, to the vase lip to the top surface, and then the measurement we're doing is like how how close to perfectly flat is this? It's within three thousandths of an inch, so it's very flat. Like that flat, the the flatness of that surface is within three thousandths of an inch of being perfectly flat, basically. So very close, very very around, accurate around so, the width of, of a, a piece human. of hair. Yeah, yeah, that's just the top. So then you can you can go further from that. Now we can look at all right. Let's look at the the the, the the vase mouth. So this is that round part on the inside of the neck of the mm -hmm. vase, if you like. And so what we're doing here is we're measuring it with a cylinder. As you can see that on the left of the vase mouth there, there's a little cylinder icon. And we're using like 10,500 points to match it, which is which is a lot. I mean, this, this actually has got some damage on the inside of the neck to this vase. Uh, and we can match it looking at the cylindricity. So how perfectly cylindrical is that? It's within 13 thousandths of an inch. Of being cylindrical, but now that we've, this is this is on. I'll speed up a bit on this because now that we've got the that top surface, you can think of that as like an x-axis, right? And if you think of a cylinder sitting in the neck of this vase, we can now because we've matched the cylinder to the surface, we can we can say, okay, how perpendicular is that cylinder to the top surface that we just managed? And we call that like the top surface is control surface A, right? So you okay. can see like the perpendicular measurement. How perpendicular is it to control surface A? And it's it's within one it's one thousandth of an inch. One thousandth. Yes. So it's per basically perfectly perpendicular to the top surface. Now, top surface is A, and now we've got this vase neck, the cylinder in the vase neck, and the center line of that vase neck. We can call that the axis of the vase, and we can call that control surface B. So now we can measure every other part of the vase relative to the top and the neck, okay. and that's what we do. So we go on to measure like, all right, you can match a sphere to the lower part of the vase body. And we did that using like nearly 80,000 points of reference. So it's really accurate. And then what you can do is you can, with that sphere, this is worth talking about for a minute. This is the highest number we saw in the whole report. It's 17 thousandths of an inch. So the center point of that sphere is basically within 17 thousandths of an inch from the center line of the vase. 
So it's like a couple sheets of printer paper basically away from it. Now, it seems like a big number relative to the other numbers, but but what this is telling you a lot more than just like how close is that center line of the sphere? What spheres are interesting, like if you took a sphere and you and you deformed it at all, like small on the bottom or you pushed it or whatever, it's going to shift that center point dramatically, right? Mm-hmm. So what what this is telling you is not only is this seventeen thousands is no joke, like that that's extremely close. The exact center point of that sphere is really close to that center line of the of the vase, but it's also telling you just how regular that shape is, because if it was if it wasn't regular and that part of the vase that matches a sphere, if that was at all deformed, it would shift that center point all over the place. So it's 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 telling you that it's not only is this very close to the center line, extremely close, it's almost perfectly spherical in this section. So it's a section of a sphere, that blue line, right? That's mm-hmm. the matching of a sphere. It's very very regular. <laughs> it's regular to the point where you, you you couldn't possibly achieve it with hand tools, by by hand or by eye. Like, because you, you know, imagine you're carving on that. And again, they, they don't credit the old kingdom or certainly not pre dynastic times with the use of the lathe. But even if they had a lathe, and even if you're using like a, a, a tool rest and you're trying to do this by hand, you, you're going to be a million miles away from this result. This is n- genuinely not achievable by hand. Right. This incredibly regular shape. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal achievement. And even though that's the biggest number you see in this report, this, is, this represents something that would require some of the very best machinery we have today to replicate even in other materials like acrylic or you know stainless steel or aluminium and this is in rose granite which is isn't a regular material right it, it, the hardness changes microscopically as, mm. as it goes through the material we get other results with same things we're matching a cone at this point to the vase bottom and this is the other end of the vase from the from the top and the center line and we're within five thousandths of an inch of being perfectly uh, perpendicular with the top we're within nine thousandths of an inch of being perfectly uh, parallel with the uh, with the center line using sixty thousand points of reference like this is it's infinitesimal it's it's so ridiculously well made it's it's not <laughs> is, is what we're seeing with this right Jesus man. so this is it gets interesting here even with the lug handles and this gets into some of the uh, some of the details around how this might have been made because you can imagine like turning this on a lathe you can't really do the lug handles right right exactly you know if this if this thing had lugs on it and you were spinning it this way you, you can't you know and you're cutting it as it's spinning you, you can't really create the lug handles yeah 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 they you, add those after in modern well, times yeah you'd have to li- well these aren't added they're 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 a part of one they're piece they're part of one piece exactly yeah, so you would have ha- you probably have to leave a bull nose and come back with a different procedure oh, to make okay, them. Okay. But we can do things like compare the the lug the match a cylinder to the lug handles, compare them to A and B, which we're doing here, and we're within a thousandth of an inch, like one and three thousandths of an inch. So incredibly accurate relative to the to those to these axes of measurement that we're taking, and then we can compare them to each other. We can create like all right, we can make one of these called reference surface F. And we can we can measure the other lug handle relative to it, and again we're within you know five or six or I think it's seven thousandths of an inch of being perfectly aligned. Uh, what is that parallel with uh, the other the other lug handle? Not only that, but it's like the tops of them. Like uh, there's actually a video of us spinning this thing on a on a surface and and having like a, a like one of these precision tolerance gauges that measures in the thousands of an inch and you sort of zero it out on one lug handle and you spin it around and it just zeroes out on top of the other lug handle like they're perfectly um the same height on the thing and 
That that also speaks to the flatness of the bottom because it's turning relative to the flatness of the bottom of the base, which we didn't measure. But that's the fact that you're zeroing out this gauge. It's in, it's in some of the videos. It's mm -hmm. manufacturers and it's it's hard to explain. And machinists and people that understand these these sort of measurements will will understand it better. But they'll get it. But it's interesting to think. All right, so assuming you have to, you've left a bull nose, right, to to create these lug handles mm -hmm. you have to come back with a different tool mm -hmm. and you've got to carve away that area of the vase body between the lug handles so what what about that part of the vase because they can't be made on a lathe it has to be made with a different process right mm -hmm. and so we looked at that we looked at the actual area of the vase between the two handles and we found the same level of precision and this is truly remarkable it's twenty thousand points of reference we looked at uh, we matched a cone to look at how uh, how how close is the center line to the center line of B, like that center line of the neck of the vase. It's within five thousandths of an inch. This is really remarkable because in today's manufacturing processes, when you change tools or you change the process, it introduces errors. Like this is accounted for in 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 our modern manufacturing processes, things like making turbine blades and stuff like that. We we understand that. Tools and process changes introduces errors, and we don't see that sort of error here. We're not seeing it, so it leaves you. It leads you to one of two conclusions: one, they whoever made this was able to handle tool and process changes better than we can, right? So, so they could they could deal with changing the process and the tool and just not have the same degree of error that we'd see, or it wasn't made on a lathe. It was made in a single pass, which means that you're talking about five axes of freedom. It's a mill. It's a so think about those CNC mills as computerized mills that can carve a sink like a complex object with one tooltip. You either it, it's one of those two things. It has to either be like three D printing. Not print. This is no. As far as we know, this is reductive. Reductive, right? As in, we're we're like taking it and carving it away, right? Okay, it's, yes, it's, obviously, yeah, yeah. Right. Geopolymer, the idea. I don't mean, yeah, right. That doesn't make sense. Like print, but think of think about like a CNC mill, like okay. a complex five axes of freedom with an arm. Yes, that's computer guided. Like that's that's the oh that's that's one God. of those two things that comes out of this analysis, and it's the fact that there's no perceivable lack of precision between the vase handles is is amazing. So. And this is just the start of the rabbit hole kind of thing. Like it, it got it got crazy from here. Um, this was a lot of fun because we we made this we made the STL file like the model available online and sort of open sourced it. And uh, there's a, a cryptographer from from Denmark named Mark Kvist who runs this uh, website called Unsigned.io. Really interesting guy. I've uh, spoken to him, and he undertook essentially a deep sort of mathematical and geometric analysis of the vase, and and he found some just utterly remarkable aspects of it that I think have some extremely startling conclusions. Uh, and he kind of started by looking for like, all right, what what are the, are there geometric patterns that we can see in this vase? So, so what can we see in it? And so, you know, he, he kind of started and he found that it actually does encompass some of the sacred geometry that we were talking about with Randall the other day. Uh, the things like the circle of life, there's, there's actually two circle of life grids that are in here and you can see them this way. So if you look at the the blue circles that measure at point D, that's a mm -hmm. grid based on the maximum internal diameter of the vase. And you can also see that grid matches the very top of the vase with the point A. 
So it's a, it's a it's a circle of life grid that matches the internal diameter, it matches the top of the vase, and then you have another circle of life grid that matches the it's that's on that's based on the external um, maximum diameter of the vase that also matches other points of it. And this is kind of where he started, and he found that that it 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 created it, not only were these these geometric patterns in it, but there's a bunch of these mathematically significant ratios and even algorithms and interrelationships between the this this the um the shapes in the vase to the point where you could define it with a single algorithm and and it it the overall point here is he's proving that this vase was designed like these de- degrees of interrelationship between these features in the vase aren't accidental it had to have been designed and then somehow executed in granite with just astonishing precision um, so one of the base principles that he found, he's sort of reverse, he's taking the object and he's reverse engineering it. Like we're looking at it and he's trying to find out what was used, what, what, is, what, is, the, what is the philosophy, mechanism, mathematics behind this vase? And the more you dig, the more you find. So one of the fundamental principles he found uh, in the vase is the use of the radian or particularly the one radian angle. So this is a little diagram showing you what a radian is. Mm-hmm. It's a simple way to to, to express an, an, an any angle, right? You go... You take the the radius of a circle, you apply it to the circumference of a circle, the radius, the, the angle that it forms when you draw lines to it uh, on the inside is one radian. Um, so if you, you know, there's a two, you can measure, you could call something a two radian angle. You could, it, half a circle is pi radians or 3.14, et cetera, radians. Right. And there are two pi radians inside of a circle. So it's it's like a, it's just an elegant way to describe any angle. Mm-hmm. Um and you can see the use of the one radian angle expressed here. So, so the one radian angle kind of defines the the curvature and the the angle of the top of the vase. It just it uh, based on that circle of life grid center point. You can you can see the one radian angles kind of defining the placement of the handles. Uh, there's a number of different uses of the one radian angle. And from that, he discovered something else. He discovered that not only is there are there radians in this thing, but the radian is the basis for an algorithm that can be used to describe all of the curvatures used in a vase. Now, th- this is this gets a little. You don't have to understand the math to understand the the significance of this. The most widely used shape in the vase is the circle. Like sections of circles are used to describe the the curves on the vase. The little tiny curves on the insides of corners and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Now, the radius of these circles, so the size of these circles, is very tightly interrelated with each other. And it's only these radiuses. Like it's, it, there's none of these. The size of these circles are accidental. They're all tightly related to each other, and they can be expressed with a single, elegant equation that Mark was calling the radial traversal pattern. And that's the equation uh, right there. But what what this is telling you is that if there were circles or curves of a different radius, of a radius that there's none of it. There's nothing here that doesn't fit this pattern. So it's only the circles of this size that fit this pattern. It's based on it's like it's it's uses radians, but it's it's it fits this radial traversal pattern, right? So you can see it's up to like mm-hmm. there's like fourteen different uh, or twelve or fourteen different circle radiuses that it, radi radii that are used. They're all related to each other. They're connected to each other through this algorithm. There's that four three two. Four three two is here as well. Um, yeah, and and so this is this is. The, the point to take home is that this isn't accidental. You might be able to find one or two degrees of, of mathematical interrelationship in an object by accident, but to, to, to define 
to find 12, like 12 tightly coupled degrees of mathematical interrelationship in an object like this is not accidental. Mark actually said in the article, he said it'd be more more likely for you to wake up one morning and have an entire new universe, like quantum universe sprouting out of your left nostril than it would be for this to be an accident. It's not accidental. It was designed. And in order to prove this, he went ahead and said, well, you know what? Let's make a model. We're going to go into CAD. We're going to build this vase using just this algorithm, using these circles with this algorithm, make it perfect. And then I'm going to compare the vase model to the CAD model that's that's built using just the math. And he did that. And the median radial deviation, so the difference from the actual model of the, scan, the scanned vase to the model he built using the maths was nine micrometers, which is 0.3 of a thousandth of an inch. Like that's the average deviation. 0.3 of, of a thousandth. thousandth. So like a ten, it's three ten thousandths of an inch. Which is at, th at that point, we're talking about degrees where we, we don't know if it's an imperfection in the scan. Right. Or even in the vase itself. We right. don't, you can't tell. Yes. You're at the limit of, mm -hmm. of resolution at of this point. Of what we can measure. Yeah, so... You got to also remember here that some of these circles we're talking about, they they range from about forty-two millimeters in size down to one point one millimeter at the small end. So you have circles, arcs of circles, that fit this pattern that are one point one millimeters in radius, which is kind of crazy, right? Very small. What was Randall saying when you pulled this up the other day? He was like kind of freaking out. He was. He I don't it. think he's watched all of the the videos. I, I I'd love him to. To sit, I want to talk. I haven't had the chance to take him through it yet, and uh, I'll probably do that in Montana here. But he was kind of losing his mind when he saw this because he he saw something very similar uh, yeah. with the the radiuses of these circles compared to some of this plasmoid technology that he was talking about. Yeah, yeah, and I think he he would this other stuff. It was interesting too. The fact that other than the radial traversal pattern, we also see uh, pi golden ratio. We see other sacred geometry put in here. So the image on the left shows you pi to within zero point one of a degree. Uh, the image on the right shows us the golden ratio squared to within less than 0.1%. I'm sorry, not degree percent. Less than 0.01% uh, accuracy with the golden ratio. There's actually the golden ratio shows up in a number of places. I've just used a couple of examples here. It also has encoded, encodes pi to within, uh, you know, 0.1%. Can you explain what the golden ratio is for people that might not know? So people don't know. Golden ratio is the, 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 the man, the, the, the aspect or the ratio of the universe. The golden ratio is 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 a fundamental principle of 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 the world. Like it's it's a it's it seems to be an encoded ratio that ex, that is is it's encoded from DNA up to the up to the formation of galaxies. It's it's one point six et cetera et cetera. I can't I can't actually remember exactly what it is, but it's 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 a ratio expressed by living things. It's also can be found by um, by uh, by by basic geometry, we went through it with the Randall Carlson podcast about how to define the ratio. But it can be expressed in the human body uh, in in terms of how it grows from you know the length of your hand down to the the, the gap in uh, the the gap uh, in your wrist here, and rel that's that that's one part of the ratio. The other parts of of it is mm -hmm. is down to here. It's it's the ratio is is a line that is dissected. Where the ratio of the small to the large is exactly the same as the large to the whole, right? So it's, it's hard to think about, but it's like take a line, the point where you dissect it, where the ratio of size is of of the small piece where you've dissected it, the ratio of that to the larger piece is exactly the same as the ratio of the larger piece to the to, right. to the whole. So it's like Got it. A and B 
B to A, A is to A plus B. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the equation for it. Right. And it's expressed in life, right? Everything that grows organic material, the human body, uh, conch shells is the famous one. It's the Fibonacci sequences attached to this. Mm-hmm. The, um, it's, you know, you take a cross section of a DNA molecule, you find the golden ratio. It's in the spiral helix of the DNA molecule. It's in the structure of galaxies. It's It seems to be a fundamental constant of the universe. And that's why I think the fact that it gets expressed in these artifacts and it's, and in fact, this sort of geometry, even radians themselves, it's, they're showing us, the builders of this are showing us that there's a language behind this. They're showing us their capabilities. This vase is, to me, represents something of, almost like a time capsule it's it's like a it's like a it's like it's like something that's sent through time to us that that is expressing the degree of knowledge and understanding that its creators had of the universe and of their system even their system of mathematics it's i actually get i have a slide on this later but there was a really i had a once um i i get i want to want to finish talking about the vase because there's 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 some interesting implications about the maths that we've been going through i'm not doing it just for the the sake of maths but come back to that time capsule idea in a minute. But so when you think about the design of the vase and how it's been made very precisely in rose granite and there's a mathematical design that's behind it, right? We get to a point where we're like, all right, so the precision, the complexity, the depth of interrelation between the features really rules out random chance. This this, this artifact was 100% designed. And it's like, okay, so how could you design this? Can you design it on paper? Remember that there are circles that are have a radius of one millimeter, basically. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you're trying to draw that at scale. Try and draw anyone. I'd challenge anyone try and draw a circle with a compass that's got a radius of a millimeter and see how you go. And then be able to execute that down to the thousandths of an inch. Remember, it's, been, it's made extremely precisely. You might be able to draw it out on a piece of paper that's as big as the room, but then you still have to scale it down somehow. It's got to it's got to find its way to an output somehow. You've got to be able to carve this thing in granite somehow. I I think the best way, and Mark proved that the best way to design this is mathematically. Right? We're gonna it's designed with the mass. We can express it with an equation. Once you've got that equation, you've got that mathematical design. You have to then do the same thing. You've got to get it to output somehow. So how do you take it from? a design to an output and into an output of a system that is extremely accurate like this you know just be able to make something like this in rose granite would require some of our very best precision lathes or precision mills and you're talking about extremely sturdy and firm bearings and rods and turn screws and it is a whole lot of capability in this right it, it it's been made with astonishing precision and the fact that it's we know that because of the area between the vase handles, right? It, it's it's extremely precise. Like they didn't they didn't lose positional calibration when they changed tools to make the vase handle, or it was made on a five-axis mill in a single pass. And this is kind of where that evidence and logic all leads. And I, I like to use this, this. I like to quote directly from Mark's article where he wrote about this. And and, and this is what he said. Quoting Mark, as far as we know, no human beings, trained animals, or naturally occurring phenomena, modern or ancient, take mathematical formulae and equations as input and produce lathe operating motions as outputs. For all the knowledge and insights we've accumulated over the ages, we know of exactly one and only one category of things capable of such behavior. The kind of thing that we refer to as a Turing machine, a device capable of taking input, holding state, performing operations on held states, 
according to predetermined principles and producing output. Now, you can make Turing machines mechanically, pneumatically, electronically, um, hydraulically, but we call this class, this class of device a computer and no plausible way of representing, operating on, or manufacturing the design of this artifact exists without having access to one such. He's saying that you cannot have made this without the use of a Turing machine, aka a computer. Be able to <laughs> take that design and produce the output to get the result that we see in this. That's a very interesting statement. That's a mind fuck. That's what we like to call a mind <laughs> fuck. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it did fuck with the mind of one of these engineers that did the original uh, analysis. I remember we talked about the metrology at the start, one of these aerospace engineer guys. Yes. So Mark does this. And this guy's name's Nick, and, and he called me up. He's like, Mark puts out his article, and you sort of, it took me, you know, you got to read this article a few times and figure out the math and trying to, to really digest it and see what it means. And for me, you know, this is validation. I'm like, this is magic. This, this, is, this is confirming some of the things that I've long suspected, and I've held this particular worldview for a while that, all right, there was technology in the past. Nick, you know, he was amazed by the metrology. He was like, this thing's incredibly precise, scratching his head, didn't know. But it wasn't until he really sort of chewed on Mark's article. He's like, he calls me up one day and he's like, dude, I have to talk to you about this. This thing is, it's keeping me up at night. It's like I wake up in a fucking sweat thinking about this vase because it, it hit, you could tell it had kind of shattered his worldview. It had like changed. He's like, I can't explain this or rationalize it without this type of technology, what the hell was going on in the past. And he, he said something to me that I was like, I, I put into a slide here, which I thought was really interesting. And some of the things that I've said that I think this artifact is much more than a sim just a simple vase, right? It's, it's encoding sacred geometry, which is the very fabric of a universe. And I think it's telling us a tale of the creator's capabilities, their elegance, their knowledge systems, right? Even their mathematical systems, like a they might have a a base radian system rather than a base 10 like we use, which is an elegant mathematical system. But what Nick said to me is like, you know what this reminds me of? He said, it reminds me of the, of, of the golden records that are on the Voyager space probes, right? So when these space probes went out in the 1970s, they had these golden records on them. And, and it wasn't like we wrote this information on there. We used mathematical principles, geometric principles. We even used the radioactive decay of, of I think, uranium atoms to provide a launch clock. We, we gave them all these clues based on different principles and maths on these vases to try and convey information about our species, about who we were, about what we knew. And we sent the goddamn things out into space. I think this vase, it, it seems to be something like that, but instead of going through space, it's been sent through time. It's like a, it's like one of these golden records has been sent through time to us, and it's, it's and if we if we have the eyes to see it and the ability to decode it, there's all this information that that we can glean from it. And we can learn something about the past from it, and that that's what Nick was telling me. I was like, that's a fantastic analogy for it, and that's truly what it is. The, the deeper we look, the deeper this rabbit hole goes on this thing. And yeah, <laughs> the crazy thing is too, it's this is now. This was the start of the year we did this and we've been working through it, but it's not the only one. You guys did more vases? We're doing more vases. We have literally 20 or 30 more that we're working on now. Uh, early results, we're seeing similar results for a lot of them, even better in terms of the met pure metrology and precision. Like some of them are zeroing it out on like the thousandth scale. What? We're also measuring stuff in CT machines now, which can go down to the micron. 
So even like, you know, 25 times more accuracy than the structured light scanning. Yeah, I, I think... Gosh, very interesting. It's, yeah. <laughs> so this dude you were hanging out with the other day, he he has like a ton of these vases. Do you have that? Can you show that picture? Yeah. Of yeah, you yeah. with all these vases? Yeah, sure. Is that the first time you put your hands on one it's of them? My, it's the first time that I've, um, here's me holding one here. This one actually is translucent. You can see through oh, yeah, the, the light, right the light through, it. through it. But this is the collection that we're, some of his that we're working on. Um, we've been, I've been extremely fortunate and I, and I do want to, I'm not going to name names, but I'm, I'm very grateful to people that have been, uh, inspired by this vase work and they've, and they have the means and the, and the ability to go out and, and collect these things like this, because, you know, these are artifacts that can be bought on the, on the antiquities market and, uh, they cost a bomb, obviously I can't do it. Um, <laughs> But uh, I mean, I'm extremely they, grateful. Well, some of the, I mean, you up to a, like seventy, eighty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars. The more provenance, the better. Usually, some of them as low as like a few thousand dollars, but mostly the good ones. You know, you're talking five figures, if not six. And uh, yeah, I'm very grateful too that they're willing to have them looked at and analyzed. Of course, the goal is. The goal is to get into the museums and to look at some of those artifacts that are in there. I would. We're, we're working on. You know, creating a, a, a standardized process that we can then propose to museums, and we we have some very uh, uh, good interactions happening, and we're very hopeful that in the very near future we'll be able to get into some museums that do allow this type of research. They're willing to work with us. Petrie Museum being one of them. They've got a number of artifacts that would totally fit within this. Not, and it, I think this technology and this technique is not. We don't just have to use it on vases. I'd love to see it done. We want to scan those drill cores that we looked at earlier and, and really define that spiral groove. We want to be able to, I'd love to see this used on boxes and statues and, and be able to really do complex geometric modeling uh, and analysis for those things. So I think mm. we're just on the tip of the iceberg when it comes to learning more about the statues of the Luxor, for example, those things were analyzed similar, not well, obviously under those techniques, but Chris Dunn pointed out that those statues of the Luxor were perfectly symmetrical. Yeah, symmetri perfectly symmetrical. symmetrical. Yeah. yeah, and it's and and the way we've done that is with photographic and photogrammetric, photo photo photogrammetry. Mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, even the smallest, like the, the sort of relatively small statues, you know, six foot statues, I think we could scan down to this level of precision, and we can, you know, we can define. Just how precise they are, how regular the curves. Are. I think there's tremendous things we can learn with this technology, and I think that's exactly what I'd love. I think we should be doing, um, because who knows what it'll turn. I I just think we should be following the evidence wherever it leads, no matter how much it kind of upsets the apple cart in terms of the the established story of history. So, yeah, this is it's really interesting stuff, and it's it's this has been a huge um, project this year, and uh, for people that are waiting for more. Vase file STLs, they're, they're coming. The analysis takes time. Like this stuff doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, the process is ongoing. I know there's there's some interest in writing a paper. Uh, we, we're looking for, yeah, I mean, scientific papers probably coming. But for me, it's this, I it's the first time I think we've, we've genuinely got some some very hard evidence now that, that is very hard to argue with about significant technology being deployed to make these things because the challenge is out there I, I would love anyone to, to make one of these like go make one if you think you can do it by hand go for it if you think you can even machine it with a tool made out of acrylic go for it if you think you can get down to these numbers 
And trust me, machinists and people that work in these tolerances understand just how well this thing is made. I want to see it. I, I, I would I, I would love to see people attempt to make it and even come close because I I just think that we're, 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 <laughs> we're light years away from this idea that these things were done by hand at this point. Right. <clears throat> and again, remember, these go back to pre-dynastic time. Do you think there'll be any sort of like attempts to suppress the kind of stuff that you guys are looking at or like dismiss it or? Oh, the, yeah, there's already people dismissing it. What are they saying? What do they say about well, it? Well, mostly it's been like, oh, the vase is fake. It's a fake vase. Yeah. Which is, I, which, I, you know, Alex Dunn in the, so one of the engineers is, is Chris Dunn's son. He, uh, that, that he's in my videos about this, but he, he, I mean, that's the only thing they can come up with that, that I've heard is, oh, the vase is fake. It's like, you think it was the vase on the, the provenance on this particular vase goes back to the 1980s. Some of these vases uh, provenance goes back to where they in terms of they have a known history, mm -hmm. go back to the 1800s. But even in the 1980s, I think you'd be challenged to make something that precise out of rose granite. And if you think you can make it today that precise with that much of like all of that maths that's behind it and everything else, try and make it and try and see how much that costs you to make it and then try and justify that by the cost it's going to, mm -hmm. whatever you think you can sell it for on the antiquities market. It's actually damaged. It's the thing, it matches almost perfectly, in fact, to the eye exactly, lots of pre-dynastic vases that you find in the in the Cairo Museum. In my video, I show a bunch of them. Like it's mm -hmm. like it is the same shape and size as many pre-dynastic vases. Obviously there's a variety of shapes and sizes when it comes to these artifacts, but I mean it just just calling it fake is is about the best argument anybody's been able to come up with because they can't handle fake how? Well somebody manufactured it and I mean it, oh. things do happen. Like people make try and sell fake artifacts. But it's like this is it's ridiculous to think that that you could do that cheaply or it's not look, this is not something that's made in some like backyard workshop in China or India and then mm -hmm. you know, mass produced and sold on the on the market. It's it's ridiculous. If you think it's fake, try and make one, see how mm -hmm. hard and see if you can get anywhere near it and how much it costs you. I I, I, I just think it's it's a facetious argument with nothing behind it more than the, the desire to dismiss this because it, it doesn't it doesn't match their worldview. No one's arguing with the metrology. Like nobody can challenge the metrology. The scans out there and available. It's public information. You want to do it and you want to figure it out for yourself. The scans right there. You can you can make the same calculations Mark made. Mm -hmm. You can measure it for yourself. You can stick it in a CMM and, and work out the data for yourself. So it's all repeatable. But the best people can come up with is oh it's fake or sacred geometry is woo is the other thing I've heard which we talked about in detail with you know, <laughs> yeah. Randall. Like sacred geometry is not woo. Sacred geometry is the universe. It is the fabric of the universe and it's. You know, knowledge of that is what essentially comprised the mystery schools. And, you know, this is, it's, this is like the way you see the world. Like this, the idea that sacred geometry is woo, that's the only other thing I've heard. It's like, oh, as soon as you see the flower of life, forget about it. It's crystal mm. pippy nonsense. Like, it's just people that don't like what it means. Right. And they just are seeking any way to try and discredit it or throw shade at me because, oh, the crazy ideas that guy has or whatever. It's like, I don't care. And, and I'm going to, I think all these other vases are going to put proof to, to all of that nonsense too. Like there's vases here that are being scanned that had provenance going back to the 1800s. In fact, funnily enough, one of these vases that happens to be on this table and is owned by this collector and is being scanned and analyzed happens to have been brought up in one of the videos that were made uh, dis like debunking this work 
as an example of a real vase. So we'll see what this real vase actually looks like because he picked the dude picked a silly example because turns out this guy owns that vase. Its provenance goes back to the 1800s, and we are going to scan it because it looks to me like it's going to show some similar. Which properties. one is it? Uh, it's the back on the back one on the right here, I believe. The big one. Yeah, the big one here. Yeah, this guy. So the guy made the debunking video about that particular. He used that vase. as an example as, as a, a fake vase. As, no, as a real vase. As a real vase. So oh, assuming okay, okay. the other the first oh, vase we scanned it. was fake. Oh, this is a this is what a real vase is. I'm like, mm. okay, bro, let's let's see. So I'm, I don't know what it. results it's going to show. I will say that not every vase shows these properties. There are handmade vases. They do, they did work on it, but there, there's you know of, often a visible difference between the ones that have that show these sort of precision properties versus the ones mm. that don't. Uh, you know, the, most of the handmade stuff is alabaster, but there is there there were still you know handmade hardstone vases as well, and you can usually pretty clearly tell the difference. Yes, yeah, it's fa it's a fascinating space. I I mean, I'm just now, are they all found in Egypt? These are there, there is some actual artifacts from around the world that I'd love to see subjected to some of these this process as well. Um, but in general, yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff. I mean, they got and and. I would like to scan other artifacts like Roman things and, and I mean, typically there's not a lot of, of hard stone artifacts like this that seem to display those levels of precision that come mm. from other um, cultures. And obviously the technologies of, that they were using was getting be were getting better too, but I'd love to scan them and compare them because I even primitive lathe made stuff I don't think is going to come anywhere near the precision of these. Oh. Uh, the best, yeah, I don't know of any particular examples um, Outside of uh, these things in Egypt, this is a, seems to be a pretty common. There, Magna Fuente bowl. There's maybe a few others that that I'd love to see scanned. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think this technology is applicable for lots of different artifacts. Yeah, they're like time capsules from a previous civilization of yeah. aliens <laughs> trying to <laughs> try, like trying to teach us something. But what are they trying to teach us, Ben? They're telling us that they knew, man. They just I think a lot of it is is. An expression of, I mean, we're not trying to teach whoever the hell reaches, re, you know, finds the Voyager probes, anything. We're just trying to let them know that we were here. We were here. Yeah. Yeah. And we had it figured out. Yeah. Well, bro, you got to catch a flight. I do at some point. Yes. So in about five minutes, you got to get out of here. Okay. So, so thanks for coming, dude. We fucking killed it. We, uh, we did a whole flurry of podcasts this weekend. We did. Hey, very enjoyable, man. Thanks for bringing me out again. Always great to see you. Hell yeah. Where can people find out more about what you're doing? Keep up. Obviously, I mean, sure, a lot of people listening already know, but for people that don't, tell them where they can it's, research you online, read, you know, I don't know. Your book's not out yet, right? No, nope, yeah, I'm working okay. on it. Another, it's probably going to be a little while for the book, but yeah, Ben Van Kirkwick's the name if you want to look me up, but otherwise, unchartedx.com or youtube.com slash C slash unchartedx. I'm also on Spotify, on Rumble. Uh, you can find all my videos on Spotify, like I said. Uh, I'm on Rumble. My, wow. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm throwing stuff on Rumble too for now. But uh, you can uh, all my so I'm on social media. I'm not super active on there, but yeah, Twitter, Instagram, that's all. That's linked at the on the website and pretty much in all of the videos. But yeah, YouTube's the main place. Yeah, you engage in some of the Twitter drama going on right no, now. <laughs> I don't play that, if, man. If I I wouldn't be on social media if it wasn't for this stuff, but. Yeah, there was some. I did. I did get some enjoyment out of some of the things I saw happen on on Twitter yesterday. It's uh, so funny that people that. there's there's people on Twitter just for that stuff, and there's people like you who are just on there just to show the stuff you're doing in the real world. Yeah, and it's so funny when you see those two worlds collide. Yeah, I ain't got no time for social media nonsense. Like honestly, I don't care. I, <laughs> I'm not spending time on social media looking at what people said about what and yeah, <laughs> you know. Tw I think yeah, Twitter's meant for 
arguments. It's it's it's, it's literally engaged for conflict. It's so stupid. It, it that's its nature. It's fine. Yeah. I, yeah. Cool, man. Well, I'll yeah. link everything below. And uh, and thanks again. We got to get you back. What are you working on? Anything new right now that's coming out soon, or what do you got going? Uh, on? What do you got going on in the pipeline? I am actually. I'm taking another look at the Serapium here shortly. Um, I've I've just got back from England. We didn't even talk about the Stone Circle stuff, but I'm. I, I am. That's a lot of research involved in that for me as well. But uh, yeah, new look at the Serapium is coming up. Plus, I haven't really done a video talking about the Osiris shaft. I have like there's some other structures up there in, in Giza that are interesting. Uh, South America. Yeah, I'm always working on things. There's another Vase video coming about the recent scans and some more data coming about those. Were you uh, filming when you were down there in Sarasota? Yeah, a lot of pictures. Okay. Yeah, not I mean yes. I this was. A chance for me to see these things in person, handle them in in person. It was the first time, as as we said, that I'd ever got to that had, that had handle them like full units. You can get you can find pieces of them in Egypt and like beneath the step pyramid. But yeah, the first time I actually can handle them, yeah, it was a thrill, man. I'm I'm really thankful to uh, to that guy for uh, for letting me play with his toys. Because... Tell him to at least put a seatbelt around him when he's driving around. <laughs> <in a Porsche. laughs> yeah, that was yeah. One might have fallen off the front seat of his car. I wasn't there. But he said it's fine. It's made of granite. It's not gonna. I mean, the fat ones are probably okay, but some there's one in here that's like translucently thin. You just kind of like that thing. You don't want to break it. Like, Jesus, Jesus Christ, that man. was an expensive one too. <laughs> Wild <laughs> shit, bro. Well, we'll get you back in the next year. So cool. Thanks, Thanks again, that. and uh, goodbye, everybody.